0: On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture.
1: Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books.
0: If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your
1: books, we recommend and use audible.com.
0: It's great and the catalog is huge. All
1: right. So if you're listening to this, you are online.
0: Maybe you're very
1: online. You probably have a website or thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites and the single best host for serious WordPress, is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and
0: click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more.
1: Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good right. job there. Yeah, Yeah. That, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it.
0: Here we go back in the Art of Darkness Studios. Uh, I'm your co-host. I'm a co-host, I'm Brad Kelly at Brad Kelly on Twitter. This is. Mm. The other co-host, Kevin Couchman, yeah. Kautzman, at Couchmania on Twitter. That's it. At yeah. Art of Dark Pod. That's Brad, us together. Uh, that's yeah. us.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're doing the thing. This is another core episode. I'm I'm ready. I have yeah. a a rather severe flu right. that I you know I tweeted uh, yesterday. I think I'm the first recorded case of the flu since March of
0: 2020. Wow. Uh, the, How does it the, feel to make history, Kevin? I I've been making history <laughs> my whole life. <laughs>
1: except for except for uh, between 1989 and uh 2001, when history briefly ended. yeah, yeah uh yeah. yeah, none of us were making history then <laughs> right the we're we're making stopped. history. Yeah, the clocks all stop, Brad. We're making history every episode of Art of Darkness. I I'm very excited for this. uh yeah. and you know what? I'm at that I'm at that point in my in my cycle of, of of illness where I'm starting to get the sweats which you know is yeah. a good sign
0: oh yeah but I don't You're, want mm-hmm. your body's looking for what, just one more exit point yes right <laughs>
1: yeah I have a very powerful immune system that's good I really that's do yeah. yeah all right yeah, we're that's... gonna I'm gonna perseverate all right all right
0: I like it I like it yeah I, I jokingly said that uh Andre tarkovsky doesn't care about your suffering um uh yeah <laughs> He probably wouldn't. Um, And that is who we're talking about this evening. We're talking about the great Russian filmmaker, Andrei Tarkovsky. Um, I know there is a lot of there are divided opinions on Tarkovsky, but the people who like Tarkovsky, he's one of these people. It's not uncommon here. He's like, oh, yeah, that's the greatest director of all time. Okay. Yeah, with people who say it without with 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 no qualifications, right? There's a lot of right. there's a lot of that on Tarkovsky. So this is going to be. Uh, I'm trying this episode. I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to um, cater to those people because I don't totally disagree with them. I I, I don't know if I always like these superlatives, most greatest, but but I understand that point. I totally see it, and I don't to, I don't entirely disagree with it. So I'm trying to cater to them, but I'm also I want to help people who maybe don't quite get it, don't quite get Tarkovsky. I feel like I'm finally got it. Um, I want to kind of help that crowd understand why these films are so good.
1: Delightful, because I am in that crowd. I Mm. am
0: in that crowd. Yeah, so I think I'm going to try to Tarkovsky pill you and, and, you know, some portion of our audience. Others will be already on board. Um, and mm. I hope they enjoy this, too. I think there's going to be some good stuff in there for them. Real quick point of business. Uh, Patreon.com slash Art of Pod. We're going to have the after dark for this one. I'll, I'll tease what that's going to be about here in a little bit. Um, May 21st of this year, we are meeting the, in the Patreon exclusive Zoom Hangout to talk about the great Aaron Gwynn's novel All God's Children. You literally if you're on patreon you get to come hang out with us we talk about the book we record it in case you miss it that's on patreon only for patreon supporters if you get in for five dollars you get access to the book club you get access to the after dark episodes 20 to 30 minutes after each episode both this core episode like this and the and the many dark rooms that we do um, and I think we're going to end up having some more treats for you folks, but we haven't quite heard mm. out all of the details. Yeah, yet.
1: yeah, some tasty <laughs> treats. I think we might yeah. be moving the movie watch parties over to Patreon. Yeah we're, yeah, we're getting
0: to have more and more Patreon supporters. At, at first, it's sort of like, you know, you got 10 people. It's like, eh, eh. <laughs> as you're starting to get a bunch of people there, there's a lot of people listening to those. So we want to give you something for your support. We really appreciate it. We do. Um, so let's just get into it. Buy
1: Kevin. me some medicine.
0: Yeah, that's right. Kevin, yeah, Kevin oh, it's falling out of the bottom of the American healthcare it, system. It know. hurts. It hurts. <laughs> it
1: hurts so bad. Oh, man, I'd go, go on, Brad. Oh, yeah. It's all good, man. It's all uh, good.
0: What? Uh, so I'm going to ask the question. All right. Kevin, what do you know about Andre Tarkovsky?
1: Uh, Russian
0: film director
1: in mm-hmm. Soviet Russia mm-hmm. film makes you ha <laughs> uh, I know that he made he made Solaris, mm-hmm. uh, Stalker. Mm-hmm. He's somebody you're supposed to appreciate. Right. He's mm-hmm. one of these, you're a film, film school dropout. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not into Tarkovsky, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. Blah. yeah. Uh, but I've never been able to get into him.
0: Fair enough. Have you Have you? And, taken a sh- crack at watching any of the films?
1: Yeah, I have. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just, i I get wicked bored. Uh, I'll be entirely candid. And I I know, I know I'm missing some trick. Mm -hmm. I'm, 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 yeah. So, and I want to be Tarkovsky-pilled. It's, I suspect that some of it has to do with the fact that I haven't made an effort to go see it in the cinema. I bet that it would be a different experience rather than like sitting in my man cave watching it on Criterion on my little TV or whatever, you know. Right.
0: Well, also where there's like, you know, a bunch of distractions around. But but yeah and that that criticism, I think that is a fair point. And and I generally am uh loath to accept the oh it's too slow criticism. But yeah, in Tarkovsky's case, I think it's actually fair. He was deliberately making slow films. Like he would, you know, if you said, hey Tarkovsky, this film it's a little slow, he'd say, Yeah, I know. That's, that's, da, what, that's what I was da. trying to do. It's it's yeah, supposed right, to be slow. Right, deal, right. like deal with it. And it's not it is, even but people people them,
1: say right. like Barry Lyndon is slow. Barry Lyndon mm. isn't slow to me. There's mm. something about the, Tar- the Tarkovsky films that I just but I help. Give me a way in, Brad. Yeah, and we I will. We will, hmm. we will
0: definitely get there because this is this is okay. like, in my notes. I got a whole we got a whole thing. We're going to talk about the pace and what what all that that all means. And, and beyond how to, that. Yeah, it. I have really
1: have no clue, uh, hardly anything about his life. I would imagine he did. He live into the eighties.
0: He lived 70s, into the eighties. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and that's he, fa- about... he was a fairly young man, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. When he when he died? Yeah, he was in his fifties. Yeah. Okay. All yeah, right. So we'll I don't get, like we'll that. There. No, I never like that. Not I'm good. in
1: my forties. I don't like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is going to be good. I think. I think you've got just right. enough foothold that you know this will be interesting. But there's going to be a lot of new stuff coming at you too. So I think. I think this is really good. Um, yeah, so let me just kind of get into it. Um, I've do got it. I've got a bunch of sources. My three primary sources are, um, the bi- biography called Andre Tarkovsky Life on the Cross by Ludmilla, Ludmilla Boyadzeva. There's going to be a lot of challenging Russian pronunciations. and I am going to do my best. I look, excuse me. I looked Nailed a lot of it, Ludmilla Boyedzeva. Uh. Interesting biography. She has a, she's clearly doing a bit of hero worship. So I'm going to asterisk a couple of things as we're going through, but, but she also shows the dark side. So it's, it's, it seems reasonably fair. Um, Interesting book. I'm going to be reading a little bit from um, Andre Tarkovsky interviews, a volume of all of the, basically all the interviews he ever did, uh, edited by this guy, uh, John uh, Gianvito. And then I'm going to read a little bit here and there from this book by Andre Tarkovsky written, basically published in the last year of his life called Sculpting in Time. Uh the subtitle is "The Great Russian Filmmaker Discusses His Art." And it's about mostly about filmmaking, his philosophy and filmmaking, but a little bit about kind of life and stuff like that as well. So, we'll I'll, I'll be pulling some some key quotes from there. Um, I'm going to read to start because I really like. I actually this this interviews book was maybe my favorite one to read, to be honest, out of the three of them. Um, I am going to read. A couple pages here from the the introduction to the interviews because I I was kind of kind of come up with how do I introduce Tarkovsky and I really can't do much better job than this. So um, again, this is from the Tarkovsky interviews volume quote few among contemporary film artists inspire the degree of ardor and zeal that Andre Tarkovsky does. In the eyes of the faithful, an encounter with virtually any of Tarkovsky's Tarkovsky's films holds the promise of awe-inspiring aesthetic transport liable to stir the innermost reaches of the spirit. To his detractors, the same films can provoke just as fervent feelings of consternation, boredom, and outright antipathy. If, however, one were to be judged by the company of one's admirers, Tarkovsky's place in the pantheon of film history would alone be secured having earned during his career the esteem of many of cinema's preeminent directors, Bergman, Kurosawa, and uh, uh, Sergei parajanov I don't know who that is, to be frank with you, among a host of other major artists inside and outside the world of film. Writing about Tarkovsky in his 1987 autobiography, The Magic Lantern, Lantern, Ingmar Bergman proclaimed that his discovery of Tarkovsky's work was akin to a quote miracle. Suddenly I found myself standing at the door of a room, the keys of which had until then never been given to me. It was a room I had always wanted to enter and where he was moving freely and fully at ease. I felt encouraged and stimulated. Someone is expressing what I had always wanted to say without knowing how. Tarkovsky is for me the greatest, the one who invented a new language true to the nature of film as it captures life as a reflection, life as a dream. For Kurosawa, speaking in 1987, a few months after Tarkovsky's passing, he found Tarkovsky's unusual sensitivity, quote, both overwhelming and astounding. It it almost reaches a pathological intensity. Probably there is no equal among film directors alive now. During the same period, an international questionnaire conducted by the French newspaper Liberation asked the Armenian director, Sergei Parajanov, why do you make films? His sole reply was to sanctify the tomb of Tarkovsky. So heavy, right? Whoa. Ingmar Bergman, I mean, I think a lot of people who know film would say he's up there with maybe that's he's on Mount Rushmore, right? And Kurosawa, top top 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, he's a heavy. For sure. And, and, and it's not like Tarkovsky's really older than these guys either. It's not like he's some storied old, he's their contemporary. Sure. Right. So mm. <clears throat> interesting stuff. So, <clears throat> okay. So Tarkovsky. You have my attention, Brad. Good. That's what I wanted to do. Oh, okay. <laughs> what are we going to yes. do for
1: the after dark? Are you coming to that? Ah,
0: yeah. Am I coming to that? Yes, I am. Uh, we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about, uh, the lore around whether the movie Stalker killed Tarkovsky and um Tarkovsky's dalliances with the spooky Ookie. You know, Kevin, that one of my favorite topics to delve into on this show is spookiness, the occult, the esoteric, the weird, the paranormal. <laughs> We're going to dip into that because Tarkovsky mm. uh, was also uh, very interested and had a number oh. of events in his life that that uh, that kind of touched on that world. And I think we're going to find this interesting.
1: Fun. And yeah. let's also contextualize this. The last core episode I did was Lenny Riefenstahl and Tarkovsky mm-hmm. Tarkovsky was working in the Soviet Union. And of mm-hmm. course, Riefenstahl worked in the Third Reich. So we're giving some balance to we our are.
0: Yeah, coverage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. Fine. It, it, uh, it kind of worked yeah. out that way and it, it really is. It's like one from mm-hmm. yeah, one from the one f- that had touched with the Nazis in Germany mm-hmm. and 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 Tarkovsky wasn't we're going to see this. I mean, he wasn't really part of the the Communist Party, but he was paradoxically loyal and we're going to get into it. it. It's actually an interesting story kind of how he's positioned in there. <laughs> um so Andrei Tarkovsky, born April 4th, 1932, dies December 29th 1986 at the age of 54. um he makes seven feature films in addition to a number of short and student phone fo- uh student films including I think his first film was uh, an adaptation of Hemingway's the Killers it was a student film um and then he made a film uh the steamroller and the violin which is uh, his, was his basically his thesis project it's quite good I would actually recommend if you're if You've watched all the Tarkovsky. Go back and watch Steamroller and the Violin. It's forty minutes, I believe. It's a it's a good watch. We're not going to talk about it in detail, but it is it's 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 necessary for the Tarkovsky completist. I would say. Um, so I'm very curious. What is it? What does that Steamroller want with that violin? (laughs) It's a it's a provocative title. It does make you think. Like, Hmm. wait, what? What do those two things have in common? (laughs) Um, yeah. Uh. According to Wikipedia, Tarkovsky is, quote, one of the greatest and most influential directors in cinema history. His films explore exploring spiritual and metaphysical themes, and they're noted for their slow pacing and long takes. Tarkovsky could drop a long take. They'll drop a take and you'll be like, wait, he never he has not cut yet. Like, it doesn't, it's its almost baffling how he hasn't cut yet. When you grow up, you know, watching the movies I did, you're like, how is this even possible? <laughs> He's doing this. Um, uh, uh and, noted... and they make reels of film this long? <laughs> yeah, exactly, what is that? Exactly. Here? Hmm. Exactly. Uh, they're also noted for their dreamlike visual uh, imagery and preoccupation with nature and memory. Now, I want to read a little, a little bit from *Sculpting in Time*, where I'm going to give you basically Tarkovsky in his own words, because he's quite a good writer. I mean, this is translated from the Russian, but he's a very clear thinker. Um, And he knows exactly what he's doing in a certain sense, which I appreciated. Um, I just want to give you, as we start here, what did at the end, toward the end of his life, what did he think the cinema was for? Quote, I love cinema. There's still a lot that I don't know what I'm going to work on, what I shall do later, how everything will turn out, whether my work will actually correspond to the principles to which I now adhere to the system of working hypotheses I put forward. There are too many temptations on every side, stereotypes, preconceptions, commonplaces, artistic ideas other than one's own, and really it's so easy to shoot a scene beautifully for effect, for acclaim, but you only have to take one step in that direction and you are lost. Cinema should be a means of exploring the most complex problems of our time, as vital as those which for centuries have been the subject of literature, music, and painting. It is only a question of searching each time searching out afresh the path, the channel to be followed by cinema. I'm convinced that for any one of us, our filmmaking will turn out to be a fruitless and hopeless affair if we fail to grasp precisely and unequivocally the specific nature of cinema, and if we fail to find it in our in ourselves, our own key to it. So I'm going to read another little bit here, but I just want to emphasize this thing. He thought it was very key that cinema was not literature, cinema was not poetry, cinema was not music, it wasn't, it was cinema. And so you that meant that you had to think about it on its own terms. Um, And I really, and I think, I think he did. I mean, I think that's, I think part of part of what's challenging about watching, um, watching the movies is like, he's one of a handful of people, directors who were really trying to understand what cinema did that nothing else could do. And so you come at it from a different angle and you're like, well, I thought I was just supposed to be being told a story. It's like books can tell you a story. The theater can tell you a story. Cinema does that and something else, right? Um, and that not not that one's better than the other. They just all have their own aesthetic and 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 philosophical and emotional niches that they can mm-hmm. they can they, yeah. that they're the best at. Right.
1: Usually, a sign that you're dealing with a genius is when they're very aware of the form that they're they're working in. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. always. Sometimes right. there can be a naive innocence, and hey, we're just making movies. Okay, right. Fine
0: right but, and 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 mm-hmm. there are great there are of course, there are great films that are just pretty much uh just telling the story, just uh you know practically theater, but pointing a camera at it. There's great examples of that That's just not that's not what Tarkovsky was up to, right um there's another little little part <clears throat> from uh, again, from sculpting in time quote, why do people go to the cinema? What takes them into a darkened room where for two hours, uh t- more than that for him? <laughs> They watch the play of shadows on a sheet. Is it the search for entertainment? The need for a kind of drug? All over the world, there are indeed entertainment firms and organizations which exploit cinema and television and spectacles of many other kinds. Our starting point, however, should not be there, but in the essential principles of cinema, which have to do with the human need to master and know the world. I think that what a person normally goes to the cinema for is time. For time lost or spent or not yet had, He goes there for living experience for cinema, like no other art, widens, enhances and concentrates a person's experience and not only enhances it, but makes it longer, significantly longer. That is the power of cinema. Stars, storylines and entertainment have nothing to do with it. So take that for what it is. Love it. Disagree with it. But that's where Tarkovsky is. Now. You got a bit of a deep thinker here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. Yes. Now, now, I, now, mm. he, I, I do want to say that in in one hand, he didn't care what audiences thought, in a sense, to a certain degree, but also, um, he in this book, he he makes this case that. You know, sometimes a you know, a lot of the criticisms of, of Tarkovsky are like these are obscurantist; these are weird films. Nobody gets them. People pretend they get them, right? Then they don't make any sense, right? Um, and in this book, he 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 copies and he sort of copies and pastes some letters that he has received, and 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 I want to just give you one because he felt it seemed like he felt very validated by this one <clears throat> quote: "A working woman from a a town in Russia." that I'm not going to try to pronounce, wrote, I have seen your film four times in the last week. She was talking about The Mirror, which a lot of people will say is the most incomprehensible Tarkovsky film. I've seen your film four times in the last week, and I didn't go simply to see it, but in order to spend just a few hours living a real life with real artists and real people. Everything that torments me, everything I don't have and that I long for, that makes me indignant or sick or suffocates me, Everything that gives me a feeling of light and warmth and by which I live and everything that destroys me, it's all there in your film. I see it as if in a mirror. For the first time ever a film has become something real for me and that's why I go to see it. I want to get right inside of it so that I can really be alive. So, you know, when it strikes people, it strikes people. Um, and I'm again, kind of uh, the promise of the premise, I'm going to try to help you guys out there who don't get... I didn't totally get Tarkovsky either. The only film I saw of his before doing this research that I got, I felt like I got, and I totally get it more now, was Stalker. Before that, I'd, I'd watched Stalker. I dug it. And then the other stuff, I was kind of like, I don't understand what... Like, I don't know why this is good. Why is this good? Why is this... And I'd get struck by, like, a shot, and I'd be like, well, that's a really cool shot. I like that. And then, you know, 20 minutes would go by, and I'd feel like, okay... Is there something else here? (laughs) So um, just know that there is there is something there for some of us. Um, Okay, Um, we might as well talk about we got to talk about his sort of lineage, where he came from. And and it's important. I can't stress enough how Russian Tarkovsky is. This is not a, uh, a he you know, he didn't speak any English. He didn't speak any other language. Um, He never really left Russia until he was like a full, like a deep into adult. He might have been in his 30s um, and, you know, lived in Moscow. So we're talking about in a guy born in 1932. So, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? After the revolution, right? Um, It's a very interesting time. I mean, he's he's contemporaries. He's not a whole lot older than like my dad, you know but but clearly on the other side of this whole Cold War thing. Um, there is something of a legend uh, what Tarkovsky's sister would call, quote, almost a hoax that the Tarkovsky family came down from uh, Dagestani royalty from the village of Tarki. Um, this is not true, but he, Tarkovsky liked to believe it. The truth is that the family was primarily Polish descending descending from the Tarkovskys um, in the Zhitomir province in western Ukraine. The darker look of Tarkovsky. If you see pictures of him, he's very dark, dark hair, dark eyebrows, and 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 uh, like a, it's, he's a very intense looking guy. If you've never seen a picture of him, I I really recommend just looking at doing a little uh, Yandex image search on Tarkovsky and and see what you're looking. At. He's an intense looking fellow. Um. Uh, This is probably the the darkness of his complexion and these kinds of things is probably because his grandmother was Romanian. Um, So uh, to tell the story overall of Tarkovsky, I think we really have to start with his father, and I think Andre would actually believe that to be very appropriate. His father is um, Arseny Tarkovsky, born in 1907, uh, a Soviet poet and translator who actually would come to be a fairly well-known poet. his gra- his father tarkovsky's grandfather was a clerk at a public bank in um elizavetgrad which is current day ukraine um this was a fairly intellectual family um with tarkovsky's grandfather participating in these literary evenings with local writers of note they'd have poetry recitals in the living room piano playing all the time oh hey cool yeah, yeah. yeah i yeah, like very, that.
1: yeah different time
0: yeah yeah for sure, everybody
1: uh, played the piano.
0: Right, right, right. And there was one, and if you had a certain amount of money, you would have. And and and, and when I say a certain amount, not necessarily wealthy. It, it was like oh no,
1: like like bourgeois, middle middle yeah, class.
0: Right, mm-hmm. and you had enough floor space, you would have a piano for sure. And had you to know a few people had to that had have a that player. piano. Mm-hmm. Had to have that piano. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Now in 1921, Arseny Tarkovsky, Andre's father, uh, he's 14 years old. He and his friends were arrested for publishing an acrostic about Lenin, not John Lennon, the other Lenin. Uh, B <laughs> I Lenin. Yeah. Vladimir Vladimir Ilyichov, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: You're like a child who wanders right. into the middle
0: of a movie. I'm glad you, I'm, I'm the glad walrus. you picked that up. Yeah, they don't I am you, the you, you're, you're, you're still allowed to write caustic acrostics about John Lennon for now. Mm. Um, (laughs) until,
1: (laughs) until our episode, uh, at the end of this year, we are covering (laughs) John Lennon, uh, in, in December. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Arseny at 14 and his friends were taken by train. They were arrested and taken by train to Nikolaev, um, supposedly to be executed. Right. They wrote some, some acrostic, And, you know, an acrostic people, I'm sure, you know, it's the first letters spell something out. Right. So the poem itself wasn't exactly bad, but the acrostic was like Lenin is a such and such. Right. I don't know what it said, but, you know, something something you weren't supposed to say. Um Spicy. Yeah. Yeah. At 14 escapes the trains. And spends the next little while wandering the Ukraine in the Crimean uh, Peninsula, getting by by begging mostly, apprenticing to be a shoemaker and some other trades. And then a couple of years after, he sort of wanders into Moscow and his his aunt, his father's sister, ends up helping him out. Somehow from here, he ends up enrolled in higher literary courses and then meets um, Andrei, our Andrei Tarkovsky's mother. Her name is Maria Vishnikova, which... Um, Who would uh, and she would be a graduate of the Maxim Gorky Literature Institute. Um, Using these credentials, later she would become a proofreader. Um, She was from like a reasonably well-off family in Moscow. Her father was a medical practitioner. Um, So these are these are Tarkovsky's parents. Now I want to read just a little bit from an interview. There's a really good interview if you go to the Tarkovsky Wikipedia page. There's a really good interview with his sister that's on a you know an external link there someplace. and she's she seems insightful and thoughtful about, about this and and willing to talk about her brother. <clears throat> Here's something from uh, her about, mostly about arsony. <clears throat> quote, my father grew up in a wonderful family. They wrote each other notes and verses, <clears throat> excuse me, stage plays at home, published a home poetry magazine. Dad said that he began to rhyme the words, quote, from the pot. But grandfather died early in 1924 and he ended up in Ma- and arsony that's tarkovsky's dad ended up in moscow without money without housing with a notebook of poems he entered the higher literary courses which arose after the death of the poet brujov who organized the literary institute all the remaining color of the russian professors the intelligentsia gathered there most of them died in the camps after the death of brujov the institute was closed, but paid courses remain in which diversification and folklore were read. And young people poured in there who could not be accepted into Soviet institutions, institutions, the children of priests, nobles, etc. OK. Arseny and uh, Maria <clears throat> Tarkovsky's parents would be married in 1928. And the next year, Arseny would be given a monthly stipend from the state publishing house's foundation for beginning authors. Now, just imagine that. You're like, I'm an author. What have you done yet? Done. Uh, nothing yet, but I probably will. If I could get a monthly check, that would be awesome. Uh, mm. <laughs> nothing changes, mm. does it? Yeah. Mm. yeah no. Uh, he would start uh, to have poems come out and would actually elite, uh, achieve a level of renown, really, when our uh, Tarkovsky meets his wife, his first wife, um, Irma Rausch, and we'll talk about it a little bit, um, Irma Rausch is at that time her favorite poet is Tarkovsky's dad right so he's he's a reasonably well known he's become he rapidly becomes a reasonably well known poet um it's a R-C- very
1: uh sonorous name as well Irma Rausch.
0: it's a good name
1: yeah, Irma yeah Rausch. I like it yeah, yeah it sounds like a character out of a movie
0: it really does yeah um Arseny would eventually become an instructor and consultant for an arts program on Soviet Radio and he would be commissioned to write a play about the quote the heroic glassmakers of uh Soviet history. Um this uh, pl- uh this play would be rejected because Arseny showed himself to be too much of a mystic. And I only make that point because I think this is something that Andre inherited. Um too much of a mystic, right? Um In 1932, Arseny and Maria moved to um, the town of Zavrajay, I think, to be closer to Marina's mother and stepfather. Um, Sorry, I said earlier her father was a medical practitioner. It was her stepfather who was a medical practitioner at the local hospital. On April 4th of 1932, um, Tarkovsky would be born on, quote, the banks of the Volga. Let me read a little bit about that. 1932, very rural Russia, right? Um, this
1: is where my people uh, were from. The oh, is that Germans right? Germans from Russia, Volga Dutch, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. The Volga, the Volga River. Uh, Germans mm-hmm. during uh, right around the time of the American Revolution yeah. uh, were emigrated to different parts of Russia. They were given plots of land and allowed to keep their language and avoid conscription as well for so, a while. yeah, yeah. yeah for a while well. until yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go.
0: So, mm, yeah small world maybe you're distantly yeah. related
1: yeah I, so there's Volga dutch and then short say and then i think mine might have been the latter but in any case yeah yeah the Volga river it's a whole big thing you can yeah 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 yeah,
0: mm. yeah it definitely is and it's it's kind of a big river you know there i'm sure there's multiple spots mm-hmm. along there in which people are yeah um let's see so this little part here <clears throat> uh yeah um Thankfully. uh, okay. this is about raising little Andre when he's a baby. (laughs) I like this. Uh, This is from the bio Uh, quote. They couldn't get enough sleep, losing their minds from Andre's crying. Arseny even said something at the moment his wife was falling asleep. He said, it's almost like our child drank the milk of a viper. Arseny's poetic intuition could guess at something in The Little Man. The boy's angry look, his wrinkled and demanding face were signs of his future character. He would not smile or coo like the newborns usually do. Who knows what babies see in their first days on Earth? Does their entire future life flash before them like in one's last moments? Or perhaps their world perception program is loading. They are orienting themselves in space. In any case, it seems that for Drilka, that was... Uh, Tarkovsky's um nickname as boy, coming into the world was difficult and certainly not a happy experience. So he was an intense, like you see these pictures of him he's intense. and you read these quotes from him he's intense. And he, and you go back and he's a baby and he's intense, right Just like <laughs> just an intense all the way down, right? Um I thought I would give you ah, uh, I'll skip that for now. Um okay, nineteen thirty four. Andre's sister Marina is born 1937. Arseny, his father, falls in love with another woman, the lively, smart, and attractive wife of a literary critic, and very soon divorces Maria and marries this woman, Antonina. At first, he's living nearby, but as the years go on, he's around less and less, and by the time Andre is sort of like an adolescent, he barely ever sees his father. Um, This angers Andre, as it would any boy pretty much um but the relationship does evolve over time to the point that in you know in sculpting in time um there's a whole bunch of Arseny um tarkovsky poems quoted in here um and there was a like um tarkovsky actually uses his father's po- poetry in a film or two he, they they sort of make peace and kind of i think i think they both mutually recognize how closely sort of spiritually and creatively they are. Right. We really don't talk enough about the
1: sons of poets.
0: Right. (laughs) That's a
1: thing. It's a, that
0: is a thing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Hmm. And it's, 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 yeah, it's, there's a way, I mean, in his, again, his father is not just a poet. He's not just like a guy who wrote poetry. He's a poet he's that a, people a know. a
1: successful poet. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, well,
1: and so he must have been, uh, he must have felt like he was sort of living in his father's shadow to a degree. A hundred
0: percent. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, that's, I aspire to make my children suffer in a similar fashion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I They you. need to conquer my legacy.
0: Right. My son's in the next room yeah, right here. Yeah, yeah. he's yeah. gotta beat you, man. I he's hope gonna... he's hearing
1: me. He yeah, yeah he's... he's got to overcome.
0: That's right. He's gonna have yeah. to have at least the he's gonna have to have the best podcast. He's gonna have in to history. have at
1: least a moderately successful <laughs> niche podcast. <laughs>
0: No i forever. think he can do it i believe in him. i bet yeah. he'll be able to pull it off <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little a little bit from uh the interview with marina tarkovsky's sister about this whole father situation <clears throat> the question uh the interviewer asks did Andre miss his father very much marina says i saw it and knew dad for him oh there you go kevin is holding up his, <laughs> his, his remedy for what ails him here Uh, dad for him has always been the ideal person. He was able to create a special, very beautiful world in any conditions, even with complete lack of money. And our mother was a nihilist in everyday life. She did not need anything, not even curtains on the windows. She was out of the house. She represented a special type of woman formed in the 1920s for whom the spiritual life was the most important and everything else was considered Philistine Philistinism. Mom never got married again, believing that no man could replace our father. She loved only him all her life, and she forgave him everything. But there was pain in her soul and dad in difficult moments of his life when he was left alone and various incidents happened to him. He always called mom. And so the relationship, they're 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 sort mm-hmm. of like always bound to each other to a certain degree and Tarkovsky's mother and father. Mm-hmm. Um. 1930 that, that
1: was a that was a lovely turn of phrase calling her like a nihilism around a nihilist around the house
0: mm-hmm like, yeah, i just didn't care. have any don't didn't yeah. care about any of it yeah just no mm. yeah it's, it's interesting right and i wonder if there's something the translation kind of lost there but i was struck by that too and no, i think it's a poetic life.
1: i think it's a sort of poetic turn of phrase right mm, um yeah yeah, and and then there's this very high contrast thing happening because you think about what Soviet Russia in the 30s, the 40s here. What period mm. are we in right now? The 30s. This would be
0: the 30s, yeah, the yeah.
1: late 30s. When you think about it, it's it's materialism and realism and mm. God is dead and we're all gonna mm. you know bring up wheat production, da da da, right. and then you have but then you have this like mystic strain flowing through by the Russian. Identity, soul. Russian, yeah. Russian soul, yeah. We still talk yeah. about that. Yeah. It's always struck me as an unusual contrast. Like they were trying to grind that out.
0: Yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. The as persona. I've learned, mm. as I've learned more and more of like Russian literature and figures, you, you've learned like, man, all this stuff is very like. It's all more concerned with God and the soul than like American art. You know what I mean? It's, it's very, it's very strange to see it. And then, yeah, you know, right. right. The state religion is atheism. Like, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. intense. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I don't really know much about the history history of Protestantism in Russia, but I don't, it's certainly not the same as as in the United States. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Interesting stuff.
0: Um, There's um,
1: nothing, nothing hits quite like a Russian mystic.
0: Right. No, I 100% agree. And Tarkovsky, oh. Tarkovsky is that, except like he was alive when, you know, you and I were little boys, you know, mm. he survives mm. into mm. almost the modern day. He would be he'd be in his 80s if he was alive now, or close to 90, I guess. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, he'd be what, 91, I suppose. Okay. Um, huh. uh, OK, 1939 on it's time for Andre to go to school. He's seven years old. Um, his mother moves Andre and Marina to Moscow. So now they go to, you know, the big city uh, in Moscow. Maria gets a job as a proofreader at a printing house. So we, we you know, it's easy to think that the, excuse me, this sort of literary of the artistic influence is all coming from Andre's um, father. But her mother, his mother also had these tendencies. She read a lot. She was trained in the, the Maxim Gorky literature institute or whatever it was called. And she very much encouraged it what she could do for money was to be a proofreader. Um, but you know, this is, you know, she lived in words just as much as Arsene did in a way. Um, Arsene uh excuse me, Andre attended Moscow School number five five four and studied piano at the local, you know, named after that great hero, five five four.
1: That's a good school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like the five five three kids. No, those, those kids are rough. I, 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 those kids are I, 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 rough. I <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, you send your daughter to 553, she comes no. home pregnant, if you know That's what right. I mean.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> 554, five, though.
0: Yeah, it's classic. It's classic, mm. you know? They're yeah. I mm. yeah. yeah, got a lot, a lot of style. <laughs> That's right.
1: It's like Gematria <laughs> bros right now are going, is, is this code? What do they know? It's just literally
0: they just... <laughs> Name the school's Name yeah. the school numbers. The, the one number, next door, they're like zip codes or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Tarkovsky uh, studied piano at the local school. Uh, he had to practice it at a neighbor's because they had no piano at home. And I'm only noting that to compare it to how his father grew up. Right. This piano. There's a piano. It's either there or it's not there. And it's reflects kind of where you're at in time and place and history and socioeconomically. Um, He was talented musically. The biographer says he had perfect pitch. Um, The biographer does um, Ludmila Boyadziva. She does kind of, you know, she sort of tends to call him a genius about everything. So did he have perfect pitch? I don't know, but apparently he had some level of talent. Um, But he was said, but it was called uh, a teacher said that he had a temperament more suited to being a conductor than a performing musician. (laughs) Just interesting. Seven years old. That, that boy, uh, should be at waving. Seven, a wand at yeah,
1: people. he should be right, right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yeah, he's um, the, he's the oldest son. He's the he has a younger sister. Uh, she's three years younger than okay. him. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. And in yeah. 1939, Andre sees his first film. This is another thing to think about too. And early on in the film, I mean, in the 30s, films have been around. There, films have been around for a while, but, but you know. It, there aren't as many. There, there's just there isn't as long of a history of it. There's there's, you know, um, and I think Tarkovsky is quite aware of it as being a young art form when he kind of got into it. Right. Um, he sees his first film uh, of Dov- Dovchenko's uh, film called Shores. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It's S-H-C-H. Uh, anyway, it's a biopic made by one of the great Soviet filmmakers of sort of the first generation of uh, Sergei Eisenstein's generation. Um, and uh, Tarkovsky was always moved by the work of Dovchenko, even though Dovchenko's work tended to be almost propaganda uh, as a lot of stuff was at the time. There's still, there's still an undercurrent of artistry, obviously, and creativity going on. Um, Andre. Okay. So, we were talking more in 1939 as we lead into world war II, uh, things do change. Now, Andre's too young to really participate in it. Sort of, uh, uh, Andre's mother manages to get her and the kids, um, out of Moscow in 1941 and back to the village where he grew up. So basically they just kind of flee the urban centers and get out into the countryside for world war II. Um, they stay and they stay there for a couple of years before coming back to Moscow. Um, Andre's father, Arseny, fought and was injured. Um, I think he lost a leg, actually. Um, anyway, um, Andre, in this time during this couple year period, he ends up having a lug, lung abscess and is hospitalized for five months. Tuberculosis, basically, it survives. But he's in the hospital for five months as a, as a boy, um, around 10 or 12 years old. Um, <clears throat> Uh, let's see. OK. Uh, oh, no, sorry. He gets the lung abscess when he's 16. Um, and when he comes out, he decides he wants to join the Young Communist League Comsmall. Basically, this is the youth division. It's it's the it's the youth division of the Communist League. I don't know if it's like Communist Boy Scouts or what it is exactly. But um, he decides that he wants that he wants to join this. Um, An interesting thing happens, though, when he meets them, he's asked, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? How are you going to serve the party? Right. How are you going to serve, you know, your mother, your motherland? Um, He says, I want to be Ludwig Beethoven. That's his response. Oh, Uh. huh. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, right. They want to hear like you're going to be a soldier or you're going to, you know, you're going to I am going to produce
1: the most wheat in <laughs> right. in in the district.
0: That's what they, that's what they want to hear. Ah, right, right, right. And so so they don't let him in. He's he's basically oh, turned away, turned away. He's too
1: based he to, to be a, a young commie. <laughs>
0: yes, he really yeah. is. He really is. Now, this hmm. is the thing. And we're going to see more of this. I don't know that you call him a communist in that I don't think. He's not particularly political. I think what you might say he is is he's at least he doesn't want to be interested in material things. Now sometimes he is, but he's sort of his he to him his sort of higher self is not interested in that crap. Isn't interested in money and and like fame and all of this stuff. Though he does get kind of caught up in all of that. So in a way, he's. But he's not, he's not political. And he's very interested in sort of the people, right? But he's but he's not he's not political. He's he's certainly not making propaganda for the party or anything like that. Um as he's becoming a teenager though, around this time, 16, coming out of the hospital, getting isn't allowed into the youth league of communists. Um, his father's gone, is absent. He becomes, Andre becomes a bit of a street kid. And I'm gonna read a little bit of this. Um See, it's kind of interesting, sort of a tough kid, right? Growing up tough. he has got that his intense look. He's sm- and the other thing, too, is we have to like, I, I don't know if I've hit this point enough. He's super smart. Like, you know, I, he's yeah, he's, that he's, came over, right? Yeah. He's read everything already, you know, that anybody's ever going to give him to read in school. Everything. So now, now he's like in the Warriors in Moscow. Right. 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 Yeah, exactly. OK, yeah, cool. here's a here's a quote from him. This is his words, but it's from the bio, biography. I'm So into that. Yeah, it's a good quote. I was spoiled and reckless. The street appealed to me with its attractive power, its freedom and the great opportunities to apply my true inclinations. When I was at school, there was a time when I passionately played be- uh, blackjack and a special game called uh, Rasha Balacha. Two people face each other, and each places a coin on the pavement or on a windowsill. You had to turn over your partner's coin by hitting it with your own. Then the money that the other person was holding in his hand passed to the winner. If the coin did not turn over, the loser paid the equivalent of the sum that his adversary was hiding in his hand. I was lucky. I used to walk with change jingling in my pockets, weighing them down and with rustling red 30-ruble notes. My mother kept money for keeping up our household in a walnut box, and sometimes I would quietly place a part of my winnings in it. Another little part. I was remarkably attracted to the streets with all their corrupting influences, in the words of my mother. I was always drawn there by zeal for loot. Dostoevsky's gambler and raw youth astounded me. It seems to me that I truly understood the raw youth when I wandered the streets with my pockets crammed with winnings. I also understood Dolgoruki's idea of becoming a Rothschild and the motives which drew him in his zeal to games, to the accumulation of wealth. So he's literally like out there in the streets playing crap, like a
1: street hustler. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. for sure. Cool. Yeah, yeah,
0: that rocks. Uh, I mean,
1: it's not dissimilar to Kubrick and his little uh, hustling chess that they Mm -hmm. would play in Washington Square Park
0: yeah for sure and you know if yeah. there was hmm. chess if there was chess husling to be done, he might have done that instead, right this is no I mean presented and, to him. and
1: now they're the next great film director or whoever is probably trading shit coins in crypto I'm not even kidding <laughs> probably. like yeah, that's that probably that would be right. like the digital equivalent
0: now today yeah, yeah you're yeah, you're probably right yeah. yeah. Now here's another little thing I want to read because mm. it's it uh is indicative. It's cool. such a metaphor. I'm liking book. this, I'm liking this character so oh, far. He's, oh, he's great. He's yeah. really interesting. I mean, he's got cool. his problems, and we're gonna see some aspects of him that are not so sympathetic, but but he's he, I, I like that he's I, I like this turn, right? Like, you know, you kicked out of the communist league. They don't let you in, right? So you re, he's a rebel. Um mm. Now there's this bit. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but there's this bit from when he's a boy and he's, he's a teenager. Uh, it's a little bit younger. Yeah, let me read this. Actually, this is when he's 12 years old. But it's it's the what I love about this bit from his childhood is this could be in a Tarkovsky film. This is like and and it happened in his life. Um, uh. When, he, when I turned 12 years old and went back to the Yeryvit, I don't know what that is, to be honest, uh, the Simonovskaya church, which I was baptized in had basically been turned into a regional museum. Only the basement had been left empty. It was a hot summer. you could see the trunks of the linden trees shimmering against the white walled whitewashed walls of the church in the background. I was with a friend who was a year older than me. He made me jealous of his bravery and his frenzied cynicism. We lay for a long time in the grass, and squinting because of the sun, we watched a low window not far from ground level, black next to the bright white walls with fear and greed. The idea of a burglary had been worked out to the smallest details. I can only remember one thing for certain. I had to crawl through the window after my enterprising friend. He was the leader of this operation and slipped first into the cool darkness of the church basement, and I followed behind him. For a long time, we wandered in the echoing basement through its hushed, mysterious nooks and crannies. My heart was beating from fear and self-pity as I had set out on an evil path. In a pile of trash dumped in a corner of that huge room, we found a bronze image of the church. It was just a fancy stamped thing. We wrapped it in a cloth and were about to go out when we heard shuffling footsteps. The footsteps were getting closer. We hid behind a heap of books. In the side door, the hunched figure of an old man appeared, wearing a faded padded jacket. He walked past us and slammed the bolts of the front door shut. I can't remember how we got out of that basement. I remember that my teeth were chattering from fear. We didn't know what to do with our find, and thinking that it was an object with supernatural powers that might have the utmost impact on our fates, we buried it behind a barn under a tree. I was scared. For a long time after that, I was expecting terrible consequences for this horrible crime before the mysteries of the unknown doesn't is 12 years old. Now, the street tough stuff is a little bit after that, but that's you can sort of see it breaking into buildings and and all this kind of stuff. Um now there's a little bit. Here's another thing where he was uh he was he was sort of not the um well, let me read this one little bit here. Um about being a street tough kid, right? Hustling, hustling playing this this coin game. Um <clears throat> quote Again, this is from the biography, quote, his hot blood would instantly be inflamed and constant anticipation of dirty tricks determined his violent reactions to supposed offense. From an early age, he showed suspicion, mistrust, an exaggerated feeling of hostility and a constant readiness to defend himself. You could easily imagine him as a brave horseman of the Caucasus clenching a dagger in his hand. Again, this is Ludmila kind of valorizing him. One cannot find here the slightest hit bit of Russian humility in good-navored forgiveness and not an ounce of self-irony. His innate sense of importance of being off limits to criticism led him to take jokes seriously and to consider the slightest encroachment on his honor as an insult. This is his words. I was cunning and observant. Cunning gave root to my skills of observation and together with the inability to hide it crystallized into some kind of awful and painful vulnerability. Now, whether he was cunning or not, I mean, those are his words. Now, here's another thing he started doing. He started dressing kind of wild, and if you, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend that I know everything about Soviet cultural norms in the 40s, but I don't think you were supposed to stand out in your presentation. That's my that's my American. I, I think understanding that's fair it. to say. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Here's 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 his outfit. <clears throat> he decided that he had to go against the flow the hipsters at the height of fashion? To hell with them. The foreign close, close-fitted trousers could stay, though. And the orange jacket he had that he had bought in the market for the money that he had won in the coin game, that would always be in style. At least the checkered Kepka hat sat very well on his buzz cut. And, this, and the shoes, they called them semolina porridge shoes. I tried to find them. Apparently, there's some distinctive-looking shoe um, that he got from a black market trader in exchange for an awesome tie with a palm tree brought all the way from Africa. That was it. So He's dressing crazy, right? That's like it is like a late teenager, which in America we all kind of just go, ah, Yeah, whatever. It's what he, you know, he'll be 25 or whatever someday and he'll dress like a normal person. It's fine, but but there it's like, Wait, what is little Andre doing? He's out there beating people up in the streets and flipping coins for money and he's wearing some crazy outfit. Like, what is wrong with him? <laughs> um, sons of poets, yeah, yeah, exactly. now, um they, uh, hey, so this goes on for a little bit longer. It goes on until he's out of high school. He's still kind of the street kid, and he's kind of just good enough at school that he can kind of hide behind the excuse of being like a student, sort of, right? It's like it, it's like if you're if you're like a hoodlumy kind of kid but you also got all A's. It's hard for like the system to know what to do with you exactly, right? Because it's like you haven't hit bottom sort of um, that moment's kind of coming. Um, 1951, he's out of school. He enters the Arabic Department of the Moscow Institute of Oriental Studies. Uh, it was possible there was some influence of his father here because his father was very interested in, in in poetry and philosophy of the East. Um, Tarkovsky works at this Arabic for a year and a half. And then according to the biographer, he drops out um, and was more interested. And he's just like going to keep making money hustling on the street. So his mother kind of fed up, not knowing what to do with him um, through some wheeling and dealing and talking to people. She gets him assigned to go work on the Taiga on a geological survey. So he's like, he goes from being like this street hustler kid, cool, and fight, likes fights and smarter and everybody he talks to, to, um, yeah, you're going to go work out in the Taiga, which I don't know if people know, it's not quite like, it's not quite... Um, Siberia, but it's you're out in the hinterlands, right? Yeah, you're out and nobody's out there. Um, and, like and i went going look, to work on a ranch in Wyoming or something. Yeah. And I looked yeah. I looked in the place where he's he stayed. I don't know if I wrote I might not have written the very the name down. It's basically in the geographic center of Russia and the province or whatever that it's in. If you look at it, there are no towns. There's yeah. nothing out there. Sure. <laughs> um, Let me read this a cool. little bit from the biography. Um. Oh, this is going to break his brain. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, quote, Andre spent almost a year working as a prospector in a research uh, expedition of the Academy of Science Institute for Non-Ferrous Metals and Gold in the distant Turkhansky District. I'm not going to look that up, but if you're listening at home and you want to, the Turk Turkhansky District. In reality, he was a manual laborer washing sand on the river Kureka. Curi- uh, carrying equipment from place to place he did not shirk from his duties covering hundreds of miles on foot through the taiga and compiling an album of drawings which was later handed into the archives of the institute the expedition began in may and in fact almost the entire cycle of nature from blooming to dying passed before his hungry observant eyes now i don't have a ton of anecdotes from this time period but there is one that's kind of interesting and it's going to it's kind of kind of hint at the sort of thing we might see in the after dark portion of the show Okay, now, people who are out there like reports, they would say sometimes they would catch Andre just literally standing out there and like staring at a tree. And if you've seen a Tarkovsky film, you might kind of understand that just stand. Just imagine you're standing in the middle of nowhere, just kind of staring at a tree, right? (laughs) Um, As a quote, as if delirious from some potion, right? So he's something's happening to his perspective out there. I have a little quote here. When he was, uh, uh, okay, out on the Taiga. One winter night, while sleeping in a hut, he heard a mysterious voice twice ordering him to go outside. As soon as Tarkovsky obeyed, an old pine tree fell on his hut and smashed it to pieces. After that, Tarkovsky believed in signs and omens and became interested in all things paranormal he communicated with psychics and the subject of hypnosis and extrasensory perception was raised in his films several times so he went out there and he got his whole perspective on everything got s- switched around right hmm. okay um, yeah. yeah yeah that confrontation with nature and mm-hmm. And in that itself. very much like you're surviving out here kind of way, you have to mm. imagine that was pretty like hard scrabble sort of existence, right? I mean, you probably sure. had your dinner hand. Your, your dinner was always there, but it sucked most of the time, I'm sure. Mm. Um, whatever the case, when he comes back in 1954, he applies for the State Institute of Cinematography. So he figured it out. He figured out what he wanted to do while he was out there, which is cool. Like his mom made the right choice, right? Like get him out of here for a little bit and uh, you know, maybe he'll figure some stuff out. Um I want to read before we talk about his his time at the Inst- the the State Institute of Cinematography. I want to read a little bit about Tarkovsky's basically what he might say is the meaning of art, and this is from the Sculpting in Time book. Um, which I do recommend. Um, some of it is a little bit on the technical filmmaking side, which may or may not be of interest to 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 you. But um, w- there's a lot of interesting stuff here for sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let me just read this this bit. <clears throat> Quote: Modern art has taken a wrong turn in abandoning the search for the meaning of existence in order to do, to affirm the value of the individual for its own sake. What purports to be art begins to look like an eccentric occupation for suspect characters who maintain that any personalized action is of intrinsic value and simply, simply as a uh, display of self-will. But in artistic creation, the personality does not assert itself. It serves another, higher, and communal idea. The artist is always a servant and is perpetually trying to pay for the gift that has been given to him as if by a miracle. Modern man, however, does not want to make any sacrifice, even though true affirmation of self can only be expressed in sacrifice. We are gradually forgetting about this and at the same time, inevitably losing all sense of our human calling. Okay, hey, that's him writing in like 1985, right? Uh, um, okay. So the State Institute of Cinematography, better known as the VGIK, um, I think some of this is going to require us to understand what's going on. And we kind of have to understand we have, we have to realize we're not in Hollywood. His career is not based in Hollywood.
1: It's, <laughs> right. Yeah. This yeah. is a little different.
0: Yeah. whole different, whole different. Absolute. Members. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Um, the VGIK was opened as the Moscow film school in 1919. It was the first film school in the world. Um, this was approved by Lenin because Lenin, not John Lennon, uh, Lenin understood um he understood it, it, it's not there's a propaganda component to it but it's not just about making propagandistic news reels even though that was uh, an aspect of it certainly during during World War II. There is a thing like we need to somehow have our own cultural culturally distinct um thing that isn't caught up with America and the West. I,
1: right? 100%. I think they truly realize the power of cinema as a means to create an an alternative mm-hmm. view of reality.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. In terms of
1: of art, yeah. art forms, nothing, nothing really comes close to what cinema can do in terms of really uh, we're like creating an image of what the world is and might be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if you, yeah, yeah, if you have a like a totalizing worldview, uh, Russian communism, Soviet communism, and you feel like you're in an existential war against the capitalists, mm-hmm. yeah, you need, you're do. You it. need movies. Yeah, you need. Right. You need movies, and, mm-hmm.
0: and they can't all just be like, "This is how great Lenin is, and this is how great Stalin is." they sure. you have to have like actual stuff that appeals it, it's the, to people. Yeah, the ability yeah. to
1: control the storytelling apparatus is the greatest power in the world mm-hmm. it's worth mm-hmm. more than money
0: yeah 100 percent. 100 percent. yeah because yeah, it tells yeah. people what's possible mm-hmm, for sure and and tarkovsky saw tarkovsky would believe agree with that 100 percent, right and and it is interesting how it can be weaponized and you know and and it can be used to um sort of degrade the consciousness of people um it can be used to sell things it can be used for whatever reason i mean luckily none of that is happening no here. Uh <laughs> yeah. No, so the like, first film
1: school in the world, yeah. First yeah, film
0: go. school in the world in Moscow. Um and you know uh the uh so Lenin Lenin nationalized the, the the film industry, put everything under the control of what was called what we would call the People's uh, Commissariat of Education, which was responsible for administering public education and most other issues related to culture. Right? They didn't really. There's less distinction between this is this is art and entertainment and this is education. It's all somewhat in the same. They they had to be aligned anyway. Um, You weren't going to put something out that would counter. It's not only that you would put something out that would counter the um, the political moment, day to day political politics, but you didn't want to put out anything that was going to be against the sort of thesis of the Soviet enterprise. Right. Um, Even if not directly. And this is where Tarkovsky would get into trouble a little later, but we're not quite there yet. Now, in between the wars, <laughs> there were rapid advances in Soviet cinema through people like Sergei Eisenstein, who people have probably heard of, especially people who, you know, had a little bit of a little bit of digging on, on film history. Um, there was a whole other generation of filmmakers sort of at the same time as Sergei Eisenstein. He's the name that most of us know in the West. Um, one of these from Eisenstein's generation was this guy named Mikhail Rahm most notable for two biographical films he made about Lenin. Lenin in October was one of them, and Lenin in 1918 was another one. Now, this guy, Mikhail uh, Mikhail Rom, would become Tarkovsky's teacher and mentor, really took Tarkovsky under his wing. And despite the fact that he was most well-known for making propaganda films, was very much about Tarkovsky and his other students, like figuring out who they were as filmmakers. Very much like, you got to find your voice, figure out how to do this the way that you are able to do it. It seemed like a very, and Tarkovsky even didn't think much of Rom's films because uh, Tarkovsky's an elitist about the quality of films. You know, there ends up being like 20 movies that he thinks are any good, uh, but really respected Rom as, as a teacher and a mentor and a, and as sort of a, almost like a father figure. Coming fresh off the taiga, right, to, into film school and getting this guy was, was huge for him. Um, Uh, so, okay. Uh, now when you get to, when you get to, you know, when you get to Tarkovsky's time, and I'm not going to do a whole cultural history of the Soviet union here, but you started to be in, this is, this is Khrushchev territory. Um, this is not Stalin. This is not Lenin. This is what is sometimes referred to as the Khrushchev thaw. And this means some of the, strictures around what you could do creatively, artistically and in entertainment, some of it was starting to loosen up. Now, it's not American Hollywood or something, but it's looser than it was a generation before. So the stuff that Tarkovsky was trying to do, Mikhail Rahm, his teacher, n- would have never been able to do any of it, right, at all. <laughs> um, so uh, so at the same time, it's, very, it's still very tightly controlled. Even to make a movie, you had to have gone through the Moscow Film School. You had to have gone through VGIK. Like, you were basically not allowed to make a movie if you hadn't, which is kind of intense, right? Um, I mean, I suppose you could make it and show it to your friends or something, but like... Yeah. Probably
1: get in trouble. I mean, and then also, like, just the impossibility of getting the the equipment.
0: Right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, You would apply to have your film made. The people's commissariat of uh, what did I call the people's commissariat of education would um, fund you fund your film. Um, You know, so you're not going out and trying to get investors. It's does this committee agree to give you some money to make this film and how much and you'd have to submit scripts to them and they had to know exactly what you were making. Right. And you had to have gone to this school. Um, Now, having to jump through these hoops, Tarkovsky would run into a lot of problems and we're going to talk about some of them. Um, he does make a, some small films. I talked about uh, adaptation of Hemingway's The Killers. This was actually the first time the VGIK had allowed students to make a film based on a foreign work. They'd never allowed that to happen before. Tarkovsky was the first. Um, and then I talked uh, I talked about the, the uh, <clears throat> steamroller and the violin, which was his final film. There was another film he made called There Will Be No Leave Today, uh, which was a... Uh, uh, oh, that's uh, that's his brother-in-law made that. I'm sorry. That's another that's another guy. The guy who would marry his sister made got to, became a fairly well-known filmmaker in the 60s and 70s. Um, uh, yeah, let me read. Um, let me read a little bit from the bio. Um, oh, wrong book. I got a lot of books, Kevin. A lot so of many books. Around. Yeah,
1: yeah. Isn't it wonderful? We live in America. You could just go online and 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 order some books and here they come. And we didn't have to go and sit in front of a committee to decide
0: to make right. this podcast. Right. The, the the people's commissariat for this podcast. <laughs> you know, frankly, that might be better. <laughs> <laughs> There's pros and cons, you know. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. There
1: have been casualties.
0: That's right. That's right. Quote, Tarkovsky studied at VGIK, that's the Moscow Film School, with great dedication, seriously and meticulously mastering the profession. There was no more street hustling going. He still dressed a little weird, but there was he was taking this deadly serious. Now, he absorbed a greater range of studies than what the curriculum required. He read books on art and philosophy, learned about painting and listened to, to listened to classical music. He had an excellent memory, a fine ear and a great craving for knowledge. It turned out that in addition to perfect pitch and an ability to draw, Andre had an undeniable talent for acting. Again, this is the biographer. She loves this guy, right? Um, his portrayal of the old Prince Bol- uh, bolkonsky in a student play without makeup was remembered by many fellow students for the original and expressive interpretation he gave the role. All right, so he's he's coming into his own here um, at the VGIK. Um, now, the film, uh, the steamroller and the violin that he made, uh, uh it won first prize at the New York student, excuse me, the New York Student Film Festival, which I couldn't find any information about how that happened, like how it got in there. Tarkovsky was not allowed to travel to New York, um, but anyway, his student film wins of, you know, that's a pretty big thing to win the New York Student Film Festival prize. Um, he was also offered to help uh, the well-known director Gregory Ch- uh, Chukray. Um, another teacher at v, uh, VGIK make a film that kind of fell through. Um, and at this time, his favorite directors were Brisson, uh, Buñuel, uh, Bergman, Orson Welles, Kurosawa, Charlie Chaplin, and Dovshenko. Talking about the, the first film that he ever saw. Now, his tastes would mature, but these would maintain these would kind of remain his sort of mainstays, I would say um, now at. VGIK, he meets uh, Irma Rausch, who we mentioned before. Um, She was also, learning under Rom, was one of only two female students studying directing. The rest of them were tended to be studying acting or something else. Uh, She had been a, as I said, she had been, she was a fan of Tarkovsky's father's poetry. And I feel like this is a good time to to give you a little bit of Tarkovsky, uh, Arseny Tarkovsky's poetry, this being Irma Raush's possibly her favorite poem of Andrei Tarkovsky's father. Now, again, this is translated from the Russian and poems, I would say and prose, but poems particularly always lose something in translation. So um, I'm just going to read this as the translation and, you know, you can make of it what you what you will. <clears throat> again, this is by Arseny Tarkovsky. There were drops of rain flying from the light into the shadows by chance we met the first time on a rainy day. Only rainbows in the mist around the pale street light told you in advance of how close my love was, about how the summer had passed, that life was uneasy and bright, and you hadn't lived but a short time, such a short time you had lived upon the earth. Like tears, the raindrops glistened on your face. I still don't know what kind of madness we are living through." I like that turn at the end. I still don't know what kind of madness we are living through after this kind of beautiful, sort of darkly tinged poem, but um so okay. Meets meets uh Irma Rausch. Um she's drawn to Andre's intense personality, right? You're that intense. Not all the ladies are gonna love you, but there's gonna be a few that are that are drawn to it for whatever reason, right? Uh they thank they, Christ. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, they would marry uh, in 1957. So they marry when Andre is 25. They have their first son, Arseny, in 1962. Uh, Irmer would go on to feature in Tarkovsky's first two uh, films, not Steamroller and the violin. Call that a student film. Andre didn't consider it really part of his move. Uh, uh, their relationship, however, would end bitterly. We will get to that now. They were probably a mismatch, Irma Rauch and Andrei Tarkovsky. She was a country girl and he was kind of, he had become something of a city intellectual by the time he's in his mid 20s. Um, Irma was talented in her own right, though, uh, and she was really good for him. She seemed just sort of open hearted and kind and th- smart and thoughtful. Um, so she was good for him, even if he wasn't really good for her. I mean, descriptions of him at this time and throughout his life he's arrogant, he's severe he's gloomy, he's convinced that he's right about everything um and it, it, he's that's the that's the personality you're dealing with um yeah and it might be this might be a good time to notice i the only person who says this anywhere that i can find is the biographer Ludmilia Boyadzeva, who says that she thinks Tarkovsky would be diagnosed with autism i Oh, okay. maybe we can just maybe we can as we go along if we observe something that fits. I, I, I'm not in the position mm. to diagnose him for sure, and she's the only person that says this. So, but I thought that was worth noting. That, huh? That's a take. Um, could be. Mm. <laughs> um, so okay, we're getting into his first feature film. He, he makes seven of them. How you doing over there, Kevin? <laughs> Super.
1: I'm doing okay. well. I li- I like this character a lot. I this this detour into throwing bones on the sidewalk and and you know gambling on the street and making money and then going into the woods, going into the deep country and then coming back right into film film school and yeah, yeah I like him. I can yeah. see where he where he emerged from. Mm, yeah, good, I'm good, good but I'm, yeah. I still want you to explain why I should give these films. Uh, all right.
0: This is where we're, we're going to be getting into that now. OK, now he's making I'm a busy making man, films. Brad. I'm a busy man. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um yeah. We're going to get into Ivan. The, Ivan's childhood, is first feature film. Now, I want to give right. you just a quote. I'm going to sprinkle quotes. Sometimes I'm not going to totally fit, but um, here's one from, from Tarkovsky. Quote, if you look for a meaning, you will miss everything that happens. There's no way a work of art can be analyzed without destroying it. So that's one thing to keep in mind when you're watching these films. Am I overanalyzing this, right? As you're watching, am I trying to make this mean something and I'm missing the whole thing by doing that? So that's kind of one thing to keep in mind. Um, uh... Okay, so I want to give you a, a description of him around the time of Ivan's childhood, the first film that comes out. And then we're going to talk about the story of Ivan's childhood a little bit. Um, I, it's probably not the film I'm going to spend a whole lot of time on because there's seven. And, you know, I'm not going to give equal time to all of them, but just out of my own taste, I guess. Uh, here's a little description uh, from 1962. This is from the interviews book. <clears throat> Quote, he's a nervous man in his 30s who looks much younger. His shirt is open, a scarf under the collar around his neck, according to the Russian style. The hair above his twitching forehead is short. He has strong, broad cheekbones and thin lips, which he often presses together above a prominent chin. During the press conferences, he gestures wildly, ignoring the microphone in his hands, which makes the volume of his voice rise and fall. He performs a sort of dance on the stage of the Festival Palace as he attempts to answer the journalist's questions, despite the poor translation, by illustrating the meaning of his words with body language. Um, This is after um, Ivan's Childhood came out. The talk is of accusations that he is a formalist, a charge leveled, interestingly, by both the far right and the far left of the Italian press. He's in Italy for this film festival. I should have set that up. It seems this is not the first time Tarkovsky has heard th- this accusation, yet he is immune to criticism that seems groundless to him. He spends scant he pays scant attention to it, okay. um now, Ivan's childhood came out of what happened was there was another director had been a, had had been making this film, um a guy named Eduard Abelov. um it was shot. It had been shot, but it was not satisfactory to the people's commissariat. They went back to the VGIK and they're like, who who's going to do this? They tried to get Mikhail Rahm to do it. And Mikhail Rahm said, I have this amazing student, Andre Tarkovsky. He made this student film, did really well. He could use a shot. Let's give him let's give him Ivan's childhood and see if he does. So, again, great mentor, right? Like sees that opportunity and is like, you know what? I'm going to hook you up, buddy. (laughs) Like, I'm going to give you a shot at this. Now, of course, you could screw it up and maybe you don't have a career after this, but you can't say nobody did nothing for you. Uh Tarkovsky takes over and essentially remakes the entire film with whatever remaining budget he had which probably wasn't a whole lot. He implements dream imagery to tell the interior story of this boy. So basically Ivan's childhood is about a boy who's sort of a war orphan that becomes a scout for the the for the Russian army in World War II. Um and it's he's sort of traumatized by war, right? And Tarkovsky sets up this tension with dream imagery of in from like Ivan's dream of as if the war had never happened, just like a normal boyhead, boyhood happening in his head, counterposing mm-hmm. that with like intense war stuff, trauma. Sure. Um, uh, and it was a hit. Uh, it was, it did really well. Um, in making the film, Tarkovsky began to demonstrate a lot of the directing, quote, rules he would sort of later reify and concretize. Um, this discipline. Uh, his enthusiasm, his obsessiveness. He was he was obsessive. They would later talk about how he would like he in certain film, certain shots, he would correct like every blade of grass in a shot. You know, and you gotta crook that one slightly to the left and this one slightly to the right to make it exactly what I want to be looking at. Very intense. Um he also ended up. Uh, oh, he also he also didn't wasn't that interested apparently in commuting communicating communicating clearly what he wanted or needed from the crew, so he wasn't much of a leader. Which, as a director, is a va- I would think is a valuable quality to have some ability to get everybody on the same page. Right, at least to you know everybody knows where we're trying to get to. He's sort of more like you know staring at a tree and sort of like. We'll just shoot it until it looks right. He uh, had another rule that he came up around this time. Now, remember, he's married. He has a young boy. He has a young boy uh, shortly after the film comes out, I suppose. His other inviolable rule is that he, Tarkovsky, has to sleep with the lead actress. Absolutely like, necessary, like, he would say. He like wrote this down. He wrote this uh, this is in the contract. He wrote this down, but it was a contract with his wife, his first wow. wife and his second wife. Um oh. they he like made her agree to it, basically. Um huh. He he said it was absolutely necessary to make a film that features a woman that he has to sleep with her. Otherwise, how would he understand the in the, you know the poetic reality of her emotional life? I mean, to me, it just sounds like a convenient excuse to cast attractive women and then sleep with them.
1: I uh, this came out of left field i, I was not <laughs> expecting that he's he's maneuvering a blade of grass mm-hmm. n- and now he's having uh mm-hmm. affairs with his lead actresses
0: but in a very formal way right It's part of it's all part of the same it's and all he may part even of the believed
1: it that it's all part process. of process yeah. yeah. good I'm taking some notes here this may be coming (laughs) I'm directing a play right now I'm directing a play right now that's
0: right what would what would Tarkovsky do boy are they
1: gonna be surprised
0: (laughs) yeah yeah this is take a note take a note yikes okay so so, all right so so he sleeps in Ivan's childhood he sleeps with the character the actress who plays the mother of Ivan uh This woman, Valentina uh, Maliavina, Irma, his wife, finds out about this uh, and and yet chooses, it appears, to live with it. Um, Basically, she would protest and he'd be like, shut up. I cannot be emotionally disturbed while we're making a film. So that's also convenient, too, right? It's like. I can never be bothered when I'm making the movie ever sure, and you're making sure. a movie and I will always be
1: making movies. Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. Right. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, sleep with the actresses right. I cast and I can never be bothered. Right. Right. Ever. And I'll be making films forever. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh nice, right? Let yeah. me give you he had what you might call troubling opinions about women. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of this. He has later. This is much later in his life. Uh, 1984. He has an interview with this woman from what is this magazine. Uh, the magazine, uh, the German magazine tip. And that might mean something to a German audience. Um, interviewed by this woman, Irina Brez, uh, Bresna. Um, That's the tip, Brad. It's, the just, tip. The it's tip. just the tip. It's Nobody reads it's just tip. Just it's the tip. T- the nobody, t- they just read the tip.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> ArtOfDarkPod.com, Patreon.com slash Art of Dark oh, yeah. <laughs> Pod. We're gonna have some ookie spooky stuff on the afterdark. It's are. gonna be fun. We are. Yeah, we it's are.
0: gonna be really good. Yeah. Um, let's see. It's, it's hard to even pick because I don't want to read too much of this, but I also don't want to like summarize. it. Like, I don't want to put it in my words. I want to put it in his words. Um, okay. Um, basically, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll summarize part of it and I'll read part of it. Basically, he says that um a woman's role. A woman's role is to basically become to like give herself to the the man in the relationship. That's what her, she's supposed to do. That's how it's supposed to work, according to Andre Tarkovsky. Now, um, let's see, she says, uh Okay, here's here's her point. Yeah, I'll I'll catch you in the middle of the conversation. She says, uh uh, he says uh something about um I don't know a single woman who insists on her own world and so proves her greatness. Name just one. That's what he says. Then the the interviewer says back, I am speechless. So the woman only has the right to exist in her love for the man. And Tarkovsky says, did I say that? We only talked about the male-female relationship, and I was not able to express something without having my assertiveness assertiveness attacked. And then she says, you've already said enough. You know very well. And then he says, I only said that it is impossible for a person when he or she loves to keep a confined world of his or her own because this world melts with that of the other into something completely different. And one frees the woman from this relationship. One destroys the relationship. The woman can't get up, shake off everything and five minutes later begin a new life. The woman's inner world depends on her feelings toward the man. In my opinion, she has to absolutely must be dependent on them. The woman is the symbol of love. Love is man's greatest possession in the materialistic as well as the spiritual spiritual sense of the world, and the woman of the word and the woman gives the meaning of life. It is not a coincidence that the Virgin Mary is a symbol of love, as the virgin who bore the Savior. When I speak to women about this subject, they always talk about the feeling of dignity that one seem, uh, seemingly wants to rob them of. From my point of view, these women don't understand that they only find their dignity in a male-female relationship, in total devotion to the man when the woman really loves then she doesn't keep track then she doesn't ask questions like you're asking now she wouldn't know what you were talking about uh yeah so he's fairly intense about this um but here's another point this is where and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this but I felt like it was it was necessary and this was the time to do it um Here's a little bit later in the interview, the interviewer says, I agree with you. As long as male values dominate, it will be hard for a woman in this world, as long as she has to compete with male values in her career. He responds, you are mistaken. For me, there's nothing more unpleasant than a woman with a big career, not because I fear for my male rights, but because I see it as something unnatural. There's a woman taking a a route that she should have ignored. Only a misleading, competitive feeling for the man has caused her to do it. And why does this happen? Does the woman want to be like the man? Does she want to prove her similar abilities to the man? I don't doubt that a woman can fulfill a man's job. Here in England, he's in England at the time he's being interviewed. Here in England, a woman has fought her way to a big political career and is one of the toughest politicians, It's Margaret Thatcher. As a politician, she behaves correctly. She is in conflict with a lot of people. But for a politician, that is a good sign. A politician who ple- A politician who pleases is a bad one. A politician has to accomplish something, and that makes him unpopular. During the Falkland conflict one could dislike this woman but her point of view regarding the Grenada invasion was understandable a woman's ability to do a man's job is nothing special of course she can do it but that doesn't prove anything it's just uh I don't know just a uh out of you know that's it that's that's <laughs> it just sounds it that. sounds
1: like he is what we would say is uh Trad yeah but in a in a mystical way right sort of like and And, uh, and yeah
0: and it's and what I what I wanted to read that second part was just to just to kind of add a dimension to it it's not misogynistic in the sense of like district he disrespects women or thinks them incompetent or something right it's something else other than that right he's literally saying like a woman could do a man's job sure yeah but he
1: does sound like a total prick
0: oh he is he's a total he's absolute 100 percent asshole for sure yeah Yeah. (laughs) yeah um Okay, so Ivan's Childhood comes out big success, especially for filmmakers first time out. It's given a wide release in Soviet Union, which at the time was 1600 theaters and made its way to the Venice Film Festival, where it won the Golden Lion, which is a big award. It's not the biggest award out there, but it's a significant award and it means you have made it. Um, it was well loved and appreciated both inside and outside of the Soviet Union, but there is were some suspicions from communist voices in particular. In an article criticizing the film written by uh, Alberto Moravia, people might know him as the author of a really great novel, honestly, called Contempt. Uh, he wrote in the newspaper, The Communist Party of Italy, uh, that um, that he criticized the film's pace, its attempts to poeticize, and uh, for it being petty bourgeois in some way. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote in a letter to the editor that this opinion should be revised and that Ivan's childhood was one of the most beautiful films he'd seen in years, was a potent and startlingly deep discourse on war, and was not petty uh, petty bourgeois in the least. So, pretty interesting. Your first film comes out and you've got intellectual heavies duking it out over your work, I mean they're in communist newspapers so take that for what, what it's worth but it's interesting that this is stirring up this kind of debate I think. Um <clears throat> however the success of the vil, the film caused in and of itself caused Tarkovsky problems. So he, here's and and this is what's tricky about Tarkovsky's relationship to the sort of the communist party and the 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 people's commissariat for education, uh, Goskino and all these things. Uh The fact that it was popular outside of the Soviet Union, just that alone, the fact that outside of the Soviet Union in the West, people liked it immediately raised suspicions of the Soviet Union. You're like, no, right. You're like, they're (laughs) like, they don't they don't have they if they watch it, you know, you're a you're a board member of the People's Commissariat of Education. You're a party member down the line. You watch. You're like, oh, that's quite a good film. Wait, why do the Americans like it? Oh, that's not good. Uh-oh. There's something here. Something the bourgeois, so the capitalists like it. This can't be good, right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> so they couldn't censor it because there was nothing to censor. Because uh. there was nothing about it that was against. It was patriotic. There was nothing about it. It was. It was. It was against war in general. But that's what they wanted it to be, right? And so they didn't really know what to do with it. So there were like these efforts to. Um, it was it was put in the distribution category of children's films. So it was like for a while was only played in like matinees. Um, some copies were destroyed, but not all, they didn't censor it. It it, it was sort of quiet steps were taken. Um, and yet he was also at the same time, like he was the big thing now in the Soviet film scene. Um, 1962, he's 30 years old. He's won, the won the golden bear or the, sorry, the golden lion at the Venice film festival. um, what does he do next, right? Uh, i will read you a small bit from an interview he he did at the Venice Film Festival about just this very thing. What is he going to do next? This is where uh, Ivan's Childhood is played, and he's being asked, um, do you already have an idea for your next film? Tarkovsky says, I am planning to make my next film about Andrei Rublev, the great Russian painter of the 15th century. Here is the topic that interests me, the personality of the artist in relation to his times. As a result of his natural sensitivity, a painter is able to more deeply grasp his era and to reproduce it more completely than anybody else. It is not going to be a historic or a biographical film. What fascinates me is the process of the artistic maturity of the painter, the analysis of his talent. Andrei Rublev's art represents the pinnacle of the Russian Renaissance. He is one of the outstanding figures in the history of our culture. His art and his life both offer rich material. Um, he goes on to talk about how there, you know, the trick with making a, a film about Andrei Rublev is very little was known about the man's life. He's this sort of Russian f- uh, beloved Russian f- cultural figure, but you know, it happened hundreds of years ago. It's not clear where he was born or when. Um, and so they had to kind of concoct a story that seems reasonable for the time frame. Um, Tarkovsky was all about making it feel, he wanted it to be genuine to the times, but with no exo- exoticism. He didn't want anything that was like, what we think of now as a sort of a sweeping period piece, right? Where you've watched like a coronation or something wild like that. It was much simpler. The dress was very simple. The sets were very simple for the most part. Um, uh, I think here in the way this film is structured, we're going to talk, I'm going to give you an aspect of sort of understanding a Tarkovsky film and maybe coming to appreciate it. And, one thing we need to understand first is Sergei Eisenstein's montage theory. This is this is a, his the big contribution of the previous generation of Soviet filmmakers to overall film theory. This idea of the montage um basically how you ba- you essentially put the, the fact that the coherent meaning of a film is how one frame or shot relates to the next shot and you can convey a lot of co- uh, a lot of meaning in what you put next to each other and that you're supposed to be structuring something sort of linear and um and sort of self-sustaining by putting these pieces together i think the film battleship potemkin is like held up as this very famous example of how to do this, how you can tell a, a story of a huge cataclysmic event by showing, you know, something happening in the distance and then something happening to a particular individual. And the viewer relates those two things to each other, right? In some ways, it's it's just basic perspective. Uh, it's almost like the science of perspective in a way. But Eisenstein really formalized this. Tarkovsky thinks what you're really trying to do, he doesn't really care about narrative like that. What he's trying to do is he's trying to put two images next to each other that make you feel a certain way. He doesn't really care if you get information out of it so much. Um, And later on, he would talk about, um, Roger Ebert would talk about Tarkovsky's films and say he's not trying to entertain you or inform you. What he's trying to do is absorb you. And That's not the same as when you say, um, oh, I found that film really absorbing. Like what Ebert says is like he's literally trying to like bring you into the film. And um, I think about this David Lynch quote, uh, too, when I'm thinking about this aspect. I'm going to explain to you what what he's doing in in this particular film, Andre Rublev, that relates to what I'm talking about. David Lynch said something like, um, I don't know why people always want art to make sense. Life doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and Tarkovsky is definitely in that school. Like it doesn't to him. It didn't matter if it made sense. And I, he would say that I think partially with getting in the way is you keep trying to look for what things mean. You keep trying to look for symbolism. And he was never attempting to put symbolism, according to him, attempting to put symbolism in there. It does emerge sort of naturally on its own. Um, why is this? How does this relate to Andre Rublev? Well, the scenes in Andre Rublev, uh, I don't remember. There's seven. There's basically seven of them. They there's almost no narrative connection between them, except for the fact that Andre Rublev, the painter shows up in all but two of them. Um, and they're vastly different parts of his life. It's not like. He goes and does this thing, and that leads to the next scene. They're they're very much about like the evolution of a moral consciousness through these vignettes. And so you see Andre do something or something happens to him, and it changes his perspective so that when you were with him again in a later scene, it forces you to feel a certain way if you've allowed yourself to be absorbed into the film. Um, now, let me give you uh, a little bit about <clears throat> uh, this. is This is kind of a nice. This is somebody else's words s- singing praise of Andre Ruble. This is Alex Ross for The New Yorker in an article that I'm not wild about, but um, has its moments. <clears throat> OK, quote, some artworks uh, impresses deeply on first encounter. Uh, sorry, some artworks impress us so deeply on first encounter that they become events in our lives. So it was with for me with Andrei Tarkovsky's film Andrei Rublev, which ends with the story of Boriska and the Bell. I first saw it in 1987, 21 years after it was made, and a year after the director's untimely death at the age of 54. I was no older than the actor Nikolai uh, Berliaev, who had been when he played Boriska and I identified with this unhinged adolescent who conjures a masterpiece from mud. I'm going to talk about this scene a little bit more because it's amazing. Um, I had the sensation that I was seeing the raw matter of history filtered through a great uh, artistic imagination. The bell sequence unfolds like a gritty documentary about some heroic Soviet-era project project like the building of a dam. At the same time, the camera roams with a subjective eyes, zeroing in on anguished faces and zooming back out to revel and the romantic sublime. Ingmar Bergman might have had that capaciousness in mind when he wrote in his memoirs, quote, when film is not a document, it is a dream. That is why Tarkovsky is the greatest of them all. Okay. Now, um, let's see. What else do I want to say about this? Um, Okay. A couple things about this film. If you haven't seen it yet, I don't want, even know if I want to rank these films they're all so different from each other in a certain sense. Um I would say if you're going to watch them and you don't you're, you're not concerned with watching them in order this one should go in like your first 3 I would say that you watch. Um it's there's there's this thing that he's doing in um all right so like my favorite my my two favorite scenes one scene is fairly early on Andre. This monk goes to um, he's out camping on a river and none the context is never explained to you. It's just he and the other monks are on the river. It gives you the year. So you just know how far how how, how many years have passed since the previous scene. He and his other monks, uh, I, some of them are icon painters. One of them is his assistant who we've met earlier. They're kind of camping beside a river and it's um, it's a pagan festival. Uh, it's Kupala night, the summer solstice, and Andre gets caught up. Andre Rublev, the character, right? This this very serious monk gets caught up watching the sexual ex- escapades of some pagans because for them on Kupala night, everybody sleeps with somebody is the idea. And Andre is Andre's a monk. I mean, he's never had anything like that, right? So he's watching it happen and he gets he gets caught. And they 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 basically the pagans tie him up for the night, and the the implication is that they might kill him. And he's let out by this very sexy pagan, you know, call her a witch, right? Um, he gets let out by her, and um, she he he. So he fi- he runs back to his camp, right? And and they're like, "Where have you been?" And he doesn't explain himself. And then the next morning, those same pagans are being persecuted um, by a uh, You know, some group, it's never again, it's never said to you. It's some religious group. They're being persecuted and they're being chased on the riverbank. And um, Andre watches this woman who let him go uh, and her like man, her partner, he's killed and she runs out into the river being pursued by these, by these religious, these Christians. And Andre Rublev doesn't do anything. So she let him out, this immoral pagan freed him and then when she needs help he doesn't do anything and then mm. that looms over the rest of the film right this like how how religious are you how compassionate are you right like what what is your moral stake in this you're supposed to be this very serious man of god and that's the subtext of almost everything else that happens in the film Um, and that's how this all works it's like each one there's some moral quandary and they stack on each other, but narratively, the the scenes don't actually have that much to do with each other, other than Andre Rublev's in them. It's sort um, of epi-
1: episodic.
0: It is absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's my favorite, maybe my my favorite scene or my other favorite scene is actually the last scene. Andre has taken a vow of silence uh, because. The monastery he was working on painting was sacked by Tartars uh, by the Mongol horde. And uh, he ended up killing another Russian to protect um, this mentally disabled, possibly. Or maybe she was a holy fool that he had picked up somewhere along the line. Now, this holy fool character is actually played by Andrei Tarkovsky's wife, Irma Roush, is in the film. And she plays this sort of like she never really knows what's going on, kind of. And Andrei Rublev protects her by killing this Russian guy. And then he takes a vow of silence afterward. The final movement of the film is this, uh, it's the the plague has come, wiped out so many people. The prince has gone looking for, he sent a group of people out looking for a bell maker. They want to have a huge bell cast and they can't find the bellmaker he's died in the plague but his son supposedly is staying at the farmhouse and the son says I know how to make it my father taught me the secret of how to cast this bell and he gets hired to do it it turns out that he has no idea how to make a bell he doesn't know what know what he's doing he's just like an arrogant teenager looking for a way to survive he's got a whole team of people working for him the actor who plays him is the same person who played Ivan in Ivan's childhood Tarkovsky liked to do this he sort of brought these actors sort of through with him to some extent. And then there's this great scene where they've made the bell and they're about to strike it. And the implication is that if the bell doesn't ring, this boy, this teenager, is going to be killed. They spent all this time and money. They didn't make the bell. And then there's this glorious moment when the bell rings, right? And this is Tarkovsky sort of... I think he's sort of pointing at some kind of faith in your own vision, Just sort of like if you really, if you really commit, if you really put it all on the line. Sometimes a miracle will happen, I think, is what he's trying to is what is part of what he's trying to say, the bell will ring. Right, right. Mm -hmm. That's like, but you have to have faith. You had to believe even if Mm -hmm. it was a lie to begin with, right, even if it's a delusion at first and this bell ringing inspires Andre Rublev to paint again. and, And that's kind of the end of the film. Now, great film long. Again, slow. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about later about some of the other things you can be looking for in that film. Um, Now, during the making of Andrei Rublev, a a person comes into his circle that is going to end up being important. Uh, One of them is the guy who plays Andrei Rublev, this uh, actor, uh, Anatoly Solonitsyn, who would be in three... Wait, wait, it'd be one, two. Yeah, f- I think four Tarkovsky films. I might be miscounting that. Um, he's he's in Stalker. He's in Solaris. He's in the mirror. And he's in Andre Rublev. Um, uh so he comes in. That's important. He sort of was dedicated to Tarkovsky. He, he left the stage and came to Tarkovsky and said, I need to be the person who plays Andrei Rublev. I will do anything for you. You know, I think you're the sort of vision of Russian of Soviet cin- cinema. And, you know, I will just give my life to, to making these films with you, um, which Tarkovsky loves because Tarkovsky loves nothing more in another person than that they be slavishly devoted to his vision. If you come to Tarkovsky and you say, Andre, I will do anything to make what you want happen, then he loves you. That's <laughs> that's the key to his heart. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Um, so he meets another person who is similar to this. Her name is Larissa Kizalova. Larissa uh she's at the time is a single mother of five and she's been foisted on tarkovsky by mosfilm Mossfilm is in hollywood terms would be the studio except there aren't really other ones other there aren't really other studios right um uh she <laughs> it's funny reading this biography uh sorry the the ludmila boyd that she this author Hates Larissa. It's clear from the first page. Just venom against Larissa. Now, some of it's probably deserved. Um, but Larissa comes in, is assigned as a as a what did I say? An assistant, and she immediately ins- inserts herself into Tarkovsky's life. She's like, "I am going to, like, I'm going to get Andre. I'm going to become. I'm going to insert myself into his life. I'm going to somehow become his wife, something, um, and." So she becomes, she's slavishly devoted to him. She, um, there are a lot of the, a lot of the cat, uh, the crew is sort of living in a big house. She's throwing and organizing like dinners and parties. She's keeping Andre kind of drunk all the time when they're not working. Um, and, you know, who knows, at some point the affair started. Um, and, and there's this, Eventually, they do get married, Larissa and Tarkovsky. And eventually, Andre Tarkovsky leaves Irma Rausch for Larissa. Um, she, there was ways in which Ir, Ir, she was more attractive than Irma Rausch. She's like more vivacious, you know. She was like more deliberately sexy than Irma Rausch was. Um, she was more extroverted. She was more sort of the center of the party. She would make outrageous claims about how her success as a ballet dancer and things like that, which no, it's not clear how true any of that is. Um, she would, you know, sit herself in Tarkovsky's lap when they were drinking, extremely flirtatious. All of these things. Um, yeah, let me read a little bit from the bio on this. <clears throat> um, you knew what she wanted. She knew exactly she, what she wanted. Yeah. Yeah, she, she got went it for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Let's see. Yeah, here's a little scene. <clears throat> Andre sat at the table with his wife and literally lost his mind watching this dancing queen. That is Larissa. Inflamed with jealousy and having had too much to drink, Tarkovsky once crushed a glass in his fist so hard that he got glass splinters in his palms. He was also said to have started tearing off the restaurant wallpaper in one of these rages. It was, in fact, clear that Tarkovsky's feelings for Larissa were so strong that he could not work. It was strong enough. Uh, it was enough for Larissa to leave to Moscow to arrange something, and then the producer would have to go search for her and ask her to come back immediately, as Andrei was unwell. Another whim of this man in love frightened the entire crew. Once when he saw some horses grazing, he boldly mounted a black stallion. He was immediately thrown off, but his foot was stuck in the stirrup and the horse dragged him across the field. His head repeatedly struck the ground. The horse reared up and Andre pulled his leg away, but he walked with a limp for a long time afterwards, as the horse's hooves had struck a muscle and his head did not feel well after hitting the stones who knows maybe this fate uh his fate had sent that black horse to sow the seed of illness in the body of a healthy man we cannot know the secret course of fate that weaves its invisible webs okay a little dramatic there but this is what Andre tarkovsky's go- going on while he's making this film about a very serious religious a uh, uh, devotional figure who's you know going to create a new perspective in icon painting and 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 bring russia closer to god right um kind of interesting interesting contradictions now <clears throat> there were some issues once this film was completed there were some problems uh, he you know the, as we'd said they were already suspicious of him based on the success of ivan's childhood Um, but this film had started, had gone over budget. Um, he'd have to come and show parts of the film to the authorities. They would criticize the pacing, the strange structure of the story. This thing I'm talking about is kind of disjointed. It's not about a clean narrative line. Um, Tarkovsky would push back with impertinence. He would refuse to make cuts initially. He would eventually he basically refuse. They eventually the Soviet union, they would refuse to show the film. Okay. So, uh, you know, if you hear about the Soviet, if I you hear just generally about the Soviet Union suppressing a film, you would think that it has something against the Communist Party, something against Stalin, something against Lenin. That would be your assumption. This doesn't have any of that. Again, it's just like it's too weird. <laughs> like they are not like they. It's it, it's it's not that it's misaligned. It's like it's not, or it's not that it's like counter aligned. It's just off. It doesn't make sense to them. Now, there is a part where um, there is an aspect of it. Um, it's it's violent, uh, especially when the the Mongol horde takes over the, the 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 raids, the town of Vladimir and the monastery there. There's some nudity, which is quite mild. Um, there's a discussion about the Russian people being bred, basically, to be held down and to struggle basically like we're a doomed people we will always be under some yoke or another um uh that didn't that didn't sit well with the soviet authorities um and the other thing is at the same time this film is trying to come out there's a film adaptation of war and peace that comes out um this is a multi-hour film uh it's the pride of the motherland. It's a high budget. It's good. I, I've seen. I haven't seen the whole thing. I've seen parts of it. It's it's compelling to look at. Um, uh, very. It's well very well respected in the international, both the critical community and. But at the time, even the sort of popcorn eating moviegoer community, um, it, you know, it's this big action adventure romantic epic, right? Um, meanwhile, you're telling me we, we
1: get war. And peace? Right. Popcorn, (laughs) popcorn, popcorn, popcorn. popcorn. War
0: and peace. Honey, I Ooh, think there's I think uh, there's peace coming later. There is, would, yeah. I, you know, if the title
1: tells me anything, honey, I think it would. Yeah,
0: yeah, fun, yeah, fun, yeah, yeah. So that was the film that the Soviet, the Soviet, the people's commissariat for education loved. They were like War and Peace, written by Tolstoy, right? He's one of our heroes, and it shows the Soviet people in all of their greatness. Um, and Andrei Rublev's like I'm gonna make a dark, kind of depressing, very long, kind of slow. Almost incoherent film about a fifteenth century icon painter. Based, right? <laughs> it's very, it's very different. Now, the violence. Here, I'm gonna lead, read you a little thing about the violence in it, because most of the film, totally not violent, Andre Rublev, and then there's one scene that's just like, good god! <laughs> it's like kind of over the top. Let me just read you. From the well, you know when a film has a Wiki, uh, in its Wikipedia page has a section called depictions of violence. You know you're going to get something good. All right, several scenes within the film depict violence, torture, and cruelty towards animals, which sparked controversy at the time of the release. Most of these scenes took place during the raid of Vladimir, it's when the Mongol hordes come into this town, include including one showing the blinding and torture of a monk. The scenes involving cruelty toward animals were largely simulated. For example, during the raid of Vladimir, a cow is set on fire. In reality, the cow had an asbestos-covered coat and was not physically harmed. However, one uh, scene depicts the real death of a horse. The horse falls from a flight of stairs and is then stabbed by a spear. To produce this image, Tarkovsky injured the horse by shooting it in the neck and then pushed it from the stairs, causing the animal to falter and fall down. From there, the camera pans off the horse, off uh, pans off the horse onto some soldiers to the left, and then pans right back onto the horse. And we see the horse struggling to get its footing, having fallen over on its back before being stabbed by the spear. The animal was then shot in the head afterward, off camera. This was done to avoid the possibility of harming what was considered a less expendable, highly prized stunt horse. Um, the horse was bought from a sad, uh, slaughterhouse, killed on set, and then returned to the abattoir for commercial consumption. Uh, in a 1967 interview, uh, 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 this guy Alexander Lipkov suggested that Tarkov that to, to that to Tarkovsky, the cruelty in the film is shown precisely to shock and stun the viewers, and this may even repel them. In an attempt to downplay the cruelty, Tarkovsky responded, No, I do not agree. This does not hinder viewer perception. Moreover, we did all this quite sensitively. I can name films that show much more cruel things compared to which ours looks quite modest. Watching the horse scene is a little tough. I got to admit, especially when you read that, you're like, oh, this horse is literally dying. Like it's not fake somehow. And it just looks like it like they're killing this horse. Animals were harmed in the making of this film. Right. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, The film and its original release for these reasons I've talked about. So the people's commissary didn't didn't like it. Um, They they particularly didn't like the the aspect of it. Showing the Russian people as like a people sort of like destined to be brutalized. they only showed it once in 1966. It appeared once at Dom Kino, one of the major film theaters, um, and they wouldn't let it go any further. They even repelled an invitation from the Cannes Film Festival in 1967. The year later, in 1969, finally, the Andre Rublev the film was released by the Communist Party to Cannes for a single showing at 4 a.m. out of competition on the last day of the festival. You can imagine how many people would to go see that. Um, <laughs> Alexei Romanov, the head of Goskino, this is the State Committee of cin- Cinematography, um, made sure this happened. It was sort of like, okay, we'll give you this a little bit, but it's got to be four o'clock in the morning, last day of competition. It can't actually, it, it can't, or last day of the festival. It can't be actually in competition. Now, that's partially successful, except there is another prize committee. That will award stuff to to uh, give awards to films that appear at Cannes that doesn't have anything actually to do with Cannes. This is the Fipresi Prize. This is a given. It's this is given out by the International Federation of Film Critics. They can give a they'll give an award out to anybody who thinks you know if they saw a showing you know at some in some basement somewhere and they thought it was incredible they can win a Fipresi Prize. Um, so. So Tarkovsky wins his first one of these. There's no money associated with it, but there is a bit of prestige. It's not like they're giving out dozens of these things every year. Um, uh, let me read a quick thing from the bio related to this. So 4am his film comes out his second film and it's like, Oh my God, this is great. Right. It's like, it's, it's, it's winning awards despite all attempts by the Soviet government to make sure it doesn't get any attention whatsoever. Um, Okay, let's see. Uh <clears throat> quote Beyond the intentions of Tarkovsky of Tarkovsky, who did not intend to pass sentence on the soul of the nation, the basic meaning of the film is a terrible one. Chaos and submission are Russia's lot. This godforsaken people's way is difficult and hopeless. Um uh, Almost half a century has passed since the making of this film, but this this length of time and the decades and centuries before them only confirm the general idea emerging from the fabric of this film. The past and the present of this nation proceeds as a series of tragic events, no matter how much we hope for the arising of a national idea that could turn the people back from the path of cruelty, filth, and ignorance. So this is where Tarkovsky is playing at like a metaphysical level. It's not political, but... But it's counter the Soviet Union idea is like we will gen- we will pull a utopia from the mud, right? And Tarkovsky is basically saying like you will never we can't do that like that'll never happen. <laughs> but but he's doing it by making a film set in the 1400s. So it's like you know it's it's difficult mm. to pinpoint what's wrong with it, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Um, let me give you a, the the uh, a Soviet official's opinion quote verbatim here. Um, let's see, uh, (laughs) quote, that film, Andrei Rublev, could only evoke profound rejection in pro-Soviet officials with its foreign nature, incomprehensibility, and most of all, the sense of uh, cla- of calamity and catastrophe. this Russia in ruins, even if it is illuminated by the light of the trim- Trinity, clearly spoke not only to the present day but also to the subsequent fate of Russia. okay. So um <sighs> I like that I I just like this idea that like the reason they hated it was because it was foreign and incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're censored because nobody understands what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> um, so anyway, it, it eventually would emerge, but it would take a long time before like it would and it was accessible for anybody to watch Andre Rublev. It would take years. And it would be another six years between when Rublev came out and Solaris comes out, right? Um, and that's not six years of production time. That's six years of root Ru- of Andre Tarkovsky basically just like not allowed to work. His applications mm-hmm. for making films were rejected. Yeah. And remember, because of the system, if your application to make a film is rejected, you don't go across the street. That's it. You had one shot. It, you're not allowed to do it anymore. You can apply it again for something else. But we're not. You know, yeah. if they say you can't make this movie, you literally cannot make this. Movie. He must have been very frustrated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Now, in the meantime, he has left Irma Rausch, and he's gotten married to Larissa. Um, he has a second son, uh, named after his father named Arseny. I don't think I have the year there. Um, but anyway, he has, he has two, he ends up having two sons, one with, one with, um, Irma Rausch, one with, um, Larissa. Um, he, uh, now here's the trick though. He's made Ivan's Childhood, which won a Venice Film Prize. Uh, he's won a Fabresi Prize, which is a very prestigious prize. Like if you win a Fabresi Prize now, you have a career. Like you will always be able to bank on that in some way. You'll always be able to get something made from that. And yet in these six years between Rublev and Solaris, he's penniless. He has no money. He has to go live with Larissa's family. And there's a there's a while where he and Larissa are literally they sleep under the kitchen table. Um, because he's got no he has no money. He has no income. He doesn't go do something else. Irma, um, she manages to, uh, she, <laughs> he's he's or sorry, not uh, Irma, Larissa Tarkovsky is so under her spell. He she claims that she has she's a witch and he believes her. So she claims that, um, she sometimes accidentally wishes ill on people and they become sick. And so Andre believes this. And he believes that if he double, he crosses her in some way that she could hurt him on purpose, accidentally or on purpose. Um, We're going to talk more in the after dark about the circumstances of Tarkovsky's death. But he blamed her at the end. He thought like, this is Larissa's witchcraft that is killing me. Right. Careful (laughs) out there. Careful. people. You gotta
1: watch out. Those E-girls. You gotta watch out. It starts off a all yeah fun and games yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it
0: ends up yeah. with witchery witchcraft right. Mm. right now sometime around and this again I'm giving you some of the spooky ooky but we're gonna talk a little bit more about it in the after dark sometime in between Rublev and Solaris um, Tarkovsky goes to a séance and in the séance. They call in the spirit of Boris Pasternak, who is a famous Russian poet who died in 1960. The spirit of of Boris Pasternak tells Tarkovsky that he will only be able to make seven films. And Tarkovsky says, seven, that's not that many. And then Boris Pasternak, the spirit of Boris Pasternak says, yes, but they'll all be very good. (laughs) <laughs> ah, ah seven <laughs> films is plenty by the way it's a, seven it's feature lot. films yeah if you they're make too seven
1: great movies or even good to great movies yeah. you're that's enough and, yeah. and,
0: and here's my opinion they're not all equally good but any one of these films made by somebody else you, that's a career you can hang a hat on no question like no doubt about it so um but i just love it and this is the thing how many how many films did he make seven (laughs) he died the same year the last one came out Mm. um there you there and there you have it yes so okay now that the as we said late 60s tarkovsky is in his well into his 30s he's living with larissa he's also living uh with larissa's daughter olga Uh, Larissa's mother at Larissa's mother's home along with Larissa's sister and her sister's two sons and daughter-in-law so you can imagine this is probably not an ideal scenario for anybody but particularly for like a rebellious maybe genius artist who is uh, you know won some prizes and should have by all rights have a have a have an artistic career of some renown ahead of him he's you know sleeping on the kitchen floor Um, uh, now Larissa sort of takes over the quote unquote business end of Tarkovsky's life. Um, and he doesn't really ask too many questions about this. Um, she takes out a bunch of poverty loans that he doesn't know anything about. Um, she, uh, makes various business deals behind his back that he doesn't know anything about. She gets him a book deal behind his back that he doesn't know anything about. And when it comes time that he was supposed to have written this book, He's like, I didn't even know I was supposed to be writing a book. Like, what are you talking about? And suddenly he owes like 1,200 rubles to somebody, and there's a whole whole thing about getting the money. But she's doing all this stuff behind his back, and he's sort of just like, I don't know how we're getting by. Larissa, apparently, this witch I'm living with, apparently has it figured out. Uh, and at the same time, she is repelling his various mistresses, and she will do things like... Um, one of Tarkov's cuz he's always even the 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 I'm sleeping with the ma- the lead actress in the film leads to I'm sleeping with whoever I want to basically uh and uh and he would sometimes say later on he's like well I'm trying to get my inspiration back sure. you know? yeah. yeah yeah that's you know. logical you see
1: <laughs> you understand
0: it is it is logical one thing follows
1: (laughs) along the other i'm not making movies anymore right
0: right but i'm going now i
1: need to get the will up right will power up to sleep with the actress
0: right right that i'll eventually
1: cast it's all honey (laughs) go be a witch
0: right you let me deal with the
1: filmmaking let me (laughs) deal with sleeping around
0: Oh my God! I
1: got this. Yeah, I was, I was right. made for this.
0: I know what I'm doing. Have Have you won a prize at the Venice Film Festival? Has uh, Jean Paul really? Sartre said that your film was the most beautiful scene, film he's seen in years? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> she had this. She uh, apparently she would she would, she was very effective because she was very conniving. She was very effective at uh, repelling his mistresses. One time she told. A mistress of Tarkovsky's, she said, listen, Andre is a very sick man, a very depraved man. He will go on week long drinking binges. Um, he sleeps with everybody. Um, and he told one of the mistresses that, like, listen, the last girl that Andre was with, I had to pay for her abortion. Now, we don't talk about it, but this is you, do, you don't want to mess. You don't want to tangle with Andre. It's it's a whole scene. <laughs> this is what she would tell, like these girls that would come around. Um So, yeah, intense. Now, Tarkovsky was a little bit of a drinker, but I I don't get the sense that, like, he wasn't a... It wasn't... Did he drink too much? uh, Probably. But I I don't think he was, like, dependent on it in any way. It didn't seem to be. Um, And he took his filmmaking very serious. So to what extent he was drinking, it was very much partitioned off from the filmmaking process. He wasn't like a... um, You hear stories about, like, Sam Peckinpah... I don't know if you know much about Sam Peckinpah. Sam Peckinpah was wasted all the time. Like making films just knocking them back. But it's you know, very impressive. Some of them are very good movies. So yeah. Yeah, so it is impre- it is kind of impressive. Um okay, so at some point though, in these 6 years he realizes he's going to have to make some kind of commercial concession. If he's ever going to have a career, he's going to make some kind of like, all right, I'm not going to make a incomprehensible 15th century epic about a Russian painter, what, which I'm, I'll i make a science fiction movie. How's that? So he decides he's going to adapt Solaris by Stanislaw Lim. Science fiction, um, at this time was a big international market. 2001 Kubrick, Kubrick's 2001, um, is sort of part of this whole scene. Uh, is it's um, let's see. So Stanislaw Lem's Solaris had been very the novel had been very popular in the Soviet Union, and Lem was one of the country's leading literary lights. So it's like, so Tarkovsky's like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make some commercial compromises. I'm gonna make this book that everybody likes that's in a genre that plays well on in the international scene right now. There's a lot of attention based on 2001: Space Odyssey. This will be the move that I'll make. Um, I think he he looked back on Solaris as his weakest film, I think, because he made that kind of compromise and he kind of hated himself for it. But the film holds up. I mean, I think it's quite good. It has moments of of where you're sort of like, what is he doing now? But in general, it's it's quite good. Um, And here's where I want to get to. Okay, so for people who have not seen Solaris, here's the premise. Of the film. I'm not talking about the book. I haven't read the book. Apparently, the book is a lot more complicated. But the premise of the film is that there's this space station out at this planet. The planet is called Solaris. And it's kind of ambiguous what has happened out there. Um, what they know is the communication has broken down between the space station and planet Earth. And there are some crazy stories that have come out. From a few people that have visited the space station about what goes on on Solaris, there's a guy who claims that basically he was flying over the planet Solaris and he saw a giant baby on the planet, and everybody sort of disbelieves him. And he years later he's like, "No, this is really what I saw." Right? So they're gonna what they're gonna do is they're gonna send this psychologist out, Chris Kelvin. He's sort of the main character of the film, and he's supposed to assess what's going on at the space station. And the assumption is that. You know he he's supposed to. It's almost like a formality. He's going to go out and he's going to check off. Like yeah, we need to shut this thing down. He goes out there and there are only two people left at the space station. Everybody else has ambiguously sort of disappeared or died or killed themselves. And and obviously like this place has got to get shut down. It's 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 literally these two crazy scientists. <laughs> but Chris Calvin very soon realizes that something what's happening out there is something about the atmosphere of Solaris, the planet, they call it a sort of the atmosphere to be some kind of living energetic organism. And what it does is it, it takes somebody that is in your memory and it makes like a neutrino based copy of them. So when he wakes up in the morning when Chris Kelvin wakes up in the morning, his wife who committed suicide 10 years before is in the room with him. He immediately freaks out. He tries to put her in a little escape pod and he shoots her off into space.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's wild. As you do. As you
0: do. Right. Yeah. And she comes back next morning. She's back. Sure. And she then I should um, call her. I should call her. (laughs) (laughs) the next morning the next morning she comes back and then um oh oh, there's this thing where when they first show up these projections when they first show up and the, the two other scientists have different opinions about these things like one refers to them as their guests and is like reasonably compassionate to them the other one will literally tell the projections to their face like you're not a human I don't care what happens to you, like you're just a you're just like a neutrino based. you're almost a hallucination. And there, there's like, I can't get rid of you. And, and, and the one scientist is literally working on a machine to get rid of them. Um, Anyway, part of the thing, too, is part of the part of the deal is when the projection first shows up to remain coherent, it has to stay very close to the person. So Chris Calvin's projected wife has to stay very close to him or she'll like degrade somehow. And when he leaves the room at one point, she like breaks through this door and she gets cut up so badly that she dies. But then she comes right back and then she commits suicide because she's been told she's not a human being by the scientist. She commits suicide by drinking liquid oxygen and she dies and she comes back again. And Chris Calvin falls back in love with her. Now, She had committed suicide in real life 10 years before, and he sort of falls back in love with her. And I'm not going to give away the ending, but what's key here to this whole premise, this whole projection, your projection turns into the real world. I was kind of struggling with the best way to say this. One way to watch a Tarkovsky film, and I actually think this is important to getting through the pacing, and I'm going to talk more about the pacing in one scene here too, but I want to make another point. It's important to as you're watching a Tarkovsky film to think about the scene that you're watching as being coextensive with the character's mental state. So they the, the the environment and them are all the same. So what's ever happening in the environment is what is going on in their head, if that makes sense. And I think what if you if you. If you see, if you think about that, like literally everything I'm seeing is, this is, this is Tarkovsky's attempt to materialize the emotional reality of his character. So when you see rain, rain doesn't symbolize anything. It's the vibe that the character is feeling, right? If you see a rusty looking wall, it doesn't symbolize anything. That's the vibe. The vibe is the best word I have of it, right? So it's it's in in the the story of solaris is this you're projecting a person and that person shows up right the mind actually makes the world that is a very important watching i think any tarkovsky scene and so you can understand even if you're slowly panning across if you're slowly panning across a field you're literally looking at the inside of the character's mind according to tarkovsky and so i think that can help you remain engaged with what you're actually seeing He's he's trying to tell you, and, and, and I know all filmmakers are doing this to some extent. They're trying to tell you things without saying it, but Tarkovsky is doing it by adjusting that single blade of grass. And he's not trying to tell you something that even can be expressed in words. He's trying to transmit, he's trying to project a vibe into your brain. Um not got it. it. Yeah. Duly <laughs> okay. noted. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> now there's another long scene in here that's almost comically long. And I want to talk about it just briefly because it's literally the key. It, it, it is, if you're not Tarkovsky pilled, it is the longest and most pointless scene in the entire Tarkovsky oof. Okay. <laughs> What happens is we're still on Earth. Chris Kelvin has talked to the guy who reported the giant baby on the Solaris planet. And then the guy who reported the giant baby is um, in the back of a car driving through a city. They filmed it in Tokyo because at that time, Tokyo had the particular kind of, quote unquote, futuristic look that Tarkovsky was going for Um, a kind of rundown futurism. And the scene is like eight or nine minutes long. Most of it is just this dude riding in the car. But what Tarkovsky is trying to do in this scene is he's trying to give you space to think about what just happened. Because basically what happened right before that scene is Burton, this guy who had visited Solaris, he says that he saw this giant baby and then uh, when he got back to Earth sometime later, he met the son of... A guy who was on the the space station and he said that son is the baby that I saw and so this whole scene where you're watching Burton ride in the car what you're supposed to be doing is absorbing that information you're supposed to be thinking about you know what could that actually mean what does he mean that a baby this baby he saw on this planet is this guy's son and eventually you do learn what it means but the first time you're watching it what is what is he talking about. Right Like, and you're literally Tarkovsky's literally giving you space to think, which is completely counter to what American films in twenty twenty three are supposed to be. You're never given space to think about anything now. It's go you're just it's smash cuts, right? It's hit him with one thing, hit him with the next thing, you know, hit him with the thing after that, <laughs> um feed their, you know, feed their penchant for violence, feed their pensions for sex, like just keep it all going. Tarkovsky's trying to give you space to literally zone out. And if you're watching the long driving through Tokyo scene, you don't have to be thinking about what does that building mean? Oh, what does it mean that he got off on that? It, it's not like that. You're sitting in a vibe. That's really that's really the thing that you're going for. And I know I'm using just like an online term, but that's get really it. the thing. Yeah, I okay. get it. Yeah. I'm hammering it's, it. I'm it's hammering not going
1: to be for everybody, though. No, 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 sure. that's true. Yeah, that's absolutely
0: mm-hmm. true. I, I think a lot of people are going to sit back from it. But, you know, on a rewatch, it's kind of interesting because I do think literally during the driving scene, you can go take you can go to the bathroom. That's all right. I think, in my opinion, Tarkovsky might hate that. But like you can you can afford to miss a you know, a, a minute here or a minute there. As long as you're understanding the general pattern of what's happening, I think you're good now. Um. Okay. Uh. In oh, I got one thing about this. Uh. Well, no, no. We'll we'll come back to that. Huh. Now, here's another thing. Remember, Tarkovsky sleeps with all of the actresses, all of the lead actresses. Right? He sleeps with the woman who plays Chris Kelvin's wife, Natalia Bondarchuk. Now, who is Natalia Bondarchuk? That's a very good question. Natalia Bondarchuk is the daughter. Of the man who made the War and Peace film, the big film that competed with his Andre Rublev, Andre uh, Bondarchuk is the commercially successful, government-approved version of of Andre Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky boinks his wife. Tarkovsky's thirty-nine years old. Natalia Bonderchuk is twenty-one years old. We got a little bit of an age gap. This course Bo- boinks his daughter. His daughter. His daughter. Yeah. Daughter. What did I say?
1: Yeah. Wife. Oh, yeah. sorry.
0: Yes, his daughter. His daughter. Okay. Now, this is going to be, this is relevant. The fact that this happens, this will come up again later. Now, here's a thing. Natalia was in love with him. Tarkovsky was in love with Tarkovsky. Slavishly devoted to Tarkovsky, right? Um, let me read just a little bit of the thing. Uh, 182 in the bio. Okay. <clears throat> uh. There's a couple of things that happen in Tarkovsky films. Every once in a while, he has an actor and he doesn't like their voice. So they just dub the whole thing with somebody else's voice. I don't totally understand it. He does it. Two characters that must, in that must the two be main pretty. characters in Solaris were dubbed over with other actors, actors, voices. That must be, make the actor quite
1: annoyed. Right. Don't you think? I would yeah. think so. Yeah, I would think so.
0: <laughs> yeah. Strange. Yeah, and it'll be just like, I didn't really like the tone. So we got to have somebody else do it. Yikes. Anyway, so he did that with Natalia, even though he said that Natalia was the best acting performance in the whole movie. He just didn't like her voice. It's weird. Anyway. Okay. Now, let's see. Uh, Uh, When it became clear that the material was filmed without problems and Hari's part, that's the part that Natalia played. That's Chris Calvin's wife. The psychologist's wife. And Harry's part went to the stage of adding sound. Natalia tried to take her own life. As she later recounted, With bitterness and shame, I remember how I once tried to end my life. My temples were pounding with the thought that I didn't need a life without Tarkovsky. But what could I do? I was married and he wasn't free. My head was in a fog. My thoughts were confused. I went into the bathroom. Hardly aware of what I was doing, I grabbed a razor and slashed my veins with it. The suicide attempt was unsuccessful. Natasha returned to life and her family, probably including her father, right, managed to cover up this unhappy episode. Tarkovsky told Larissa that everything would be the same as before and Natalia receded from the scene. Literally, the movie, Natalia's character is about, she kills herself out of like a love, not being, her her marriage ending, going poorly with the main character. It kills herself, the character kills herself in the film and in the past version of the and then Natalia tries to do it in real life because she can't be with Tarkovsky, and he's e- just sort of like, you know. And here's here's a question I have for you. Okay, thinking about your a film career, if ma- imagine you were a Hollywood director, you'd had some success, but you were trying, you're still trying to kind of, you're still trying to get a foothold in the world. And imagine you slept with Steven Spielberg's daughter, and then just abandoned her and she tried to kill herself over it. How good would that be for your career?
1: Probably not good.
0: <laughs> not and good, I feel,
1: I'd right? feel pretty bad about it.
0: Oh, I'd feel terrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Tarkovsky yeah. never really expressed much in terms of remorse about it, to be honest. Mm. Mm. Um, but
1: it's probably going to cause some problems with the old career Reno there. <laughs> it, yeah, it does. Yeah. It Oof. Does. Okay. Yeah. He okay. a bit of a he's a bad boy, isn't he?
0: Yeah he is. he's not he,
1: he he does not give a fuck.
0: No, no, he does not. Okay. No, huh. he doesn't. Hmm. Okay. So quick thing on the reception. Solaris premiered 1972 Cannes Film Festival. It won the Grand Prix Special Jury Prize was nominated for the Palme d'Or, which is the Palme d'Or is the big prize there. The the special jury prize is like the second prize. Still a big deal. I mean, any any filmmaker in the world would kill to have to win a grand prix special jury prize at Cannes. I mean, that would be that would be it, right? Um uh, in the Soviet Union, the film premiered uh, in, um, in Moscow on February 5th, 1973, um, despite the film's narrow release in only five theaters in the Soviet Union. This is apparently a disputed point, but the film still the film sold 10 and a half million tickets. Unlike the vast majority of commercial and ideological films in the 70s, Solaris was screened um, in limited runs for 15 years without any breaks, giving it cult status. In the Eastern Bloc and in the West, Solaris premiered later. In the United States, a version of Solaris that was truncated by 30 minutes per, uh, premiered at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York uh, on October 6th, 1976. Um, apparently, Lem uh, Stanislaw never really liked Tarkovsky's version of the film and at one point may have even at least thought about polling rights. Um Tarkovsky wanted a film based on the novel, but he wanted it to be artistically independent of it while Lem opposed any divergence of the screenplay from the novel. So you got two. That's two very difficult stances to have. I'm going to make an adaptation of your novel, but I'm going to do my whole own thing with it. And then the novelist being like, I don't want you making any changes. Those two things are you're never going to be able to see eye to eye. I mean, this is kind of why um, this is why uh Stephen King hated Kubrick's The Shining, right? It, it, he was committed to his book. He couldn't see the film as its own thing. He saw it as right. somebody ruining his book. Right? Sure. He, he only came see. around to it later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, important thing about 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, <laughs> Harkovsky hated it. <laughs> yeah. Harkowski I was poking around. Okay. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he, go on. Yeah, he 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 basically, which wanted to make Solaris as like the anti two thousand one A Space Odyssey. Instead of like all the clean lines of the space station, he was like, let's make this space station look like a rundown bus. Like, and it does. It looks like it's been lived in and lived in hard. There's stuff sparking. There's like debris, like debris on the ground. Like, it does look like it looks much more lived in. I, I don't want to pit these films head to head because I. I kind of, though there's like a very tenuous similarity in premise, just they're on space stations. They're very different films trying to do very different things. And it's almost not useful to me to like pit them against each other. Um, but some people have referred to, especially in this instance of 2001 and Space Odyssey versus Solaris as like, Kubrick is like the left-brained version of this. And and, and Tarkovsky's like the right-brained version of this. I don't know how fair that is, but, but there are, there is like a opposite sides of the coin kind of thing going Hmm, here. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Double feature. Very long night. Oh my God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Buckle up. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, At what point do you drop the acid? Maybe, maybe, maybe (laughs) after. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to be a long day.
0: Yeah. I don't know. uh, In the cinema. Long day, No matter how you do it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, OK, let me um, and we're doing two and we're actually doing OK on time here. All right. Um, OK, I want to talk about a couple of things, though. I want to read a little bit from Sculpting in Time about that's sort of relevant to Solaris. Uh, all right. So, um, OK. This is the quote again. I'm just kind of quoting stuff that I think is interesting that he said, Um Here's a quote from Sculpting in Time. All creative work strives for simplicity, for perfectly simple expression. And this means reaching down into the furthest depths of the recreation of of life. But that is the most painful part of creative work, finding the shortest path between what you want to say or express and its ultimate reproduction in a finished image. The struggle for simplicity is the painful search for a form adequate to the truth you have grasped. You long to be able to achieve great things while economizing the means. The striving for perfection leads an artist to make uh, spiritual discoveries, to exert the utmost moral effort. Aspiration towards the absolute is the moving force in the in the development of mankind. For the me, the idea of realism in art is linked with that force. Art is realistic when it strives to an ex- express an ethical ideal. Realism in a, is a striving for the truth, and truth is always beautiful here the aesthetic co- coincides with the ethical now we have to notice too that his version of realism isn't like make a gritty reboot of something right it's it's much more like it incorporates you know maybe witchcraft and psychic being psychics and space and you know it, his his version of realism is not uh it's not like american naturalism or something like that um okay um one more. Yeah, one more thing from because we're going to talk about his next film, which I think is actually his strangest film, um, The Mirror. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the principles associated with that. We're not going to spend a ton of time on The Mirror, um, but it's definitely needs some attention. Um, OK. Because I love his perspective on The Mirror received some criticism for being, quote unquote, experimental um, and Tarkovsky said Tarkovsky hated calling anything he ever did experimental and he has an interesting point on this and I just want to kind of frame that up um nothing quote nothing could be more meaningless than the word search applied to a work of art it covers impotence inner emptiness lack of true creative consciousness petty vainglory an artist who is seeking, these words uh, are merely the cover for a middle brow acceptance of inferior work. Art is not science. One can't start experimenting. When an experiment remains on the level of experiment and not on a stage in the process of producing the finished uh, work which the artist went through in private, then the aim of the art has not been attained. Um, he then quotes something, I think he quotes Paul Valerie, and he says, I don't search, I find. So like his point is, his point was like, I can make the, if I make the weirdest movie you've ever seen, that doesn't mean it's experimental. Experimental is I'm trying something to see if it works. I don't put anything on celluloid unless I think it works. Right. right. I like I, that. I, I do I like that, that too. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. You- Experiment makes it sound like I don't have any stakes, like I'm goofing around or something. It's like I know exactly mm-hmm. what I'm doing. It's just weird to you because it's not the same thing you saw, you know, the last time you were at the cinema. I dig um, it. Yeah. Okay. So now let me read one more bit about the framing up the the, the conceit of the film, the mirror. <clears throat> um. <clears throat> all right. Just flipping through my pages here. Uh. <clears throat> all right. So. <clears throat> Okay. Uh, All four. uh, No, sorry. Generally, excuse me. Generally, people's memories are precious to them. It is no accident that they are colored by poetry. The most beautiful memories are those of childhood. Of course, memory has to be worked upon before it can become the basis of an artistic reconstruction of the past. And here it is important not to lose the particular emotional atmosphere without which a memory evoked in every detail merely gives rise to a bitter feeling of disappointment. There's an enormous difference, after all, between the way you remember the house in which you were born and which you haven't seen for years and the actual sight of the house after a prolonged absence. Usually, the poetry of the memory is destroyed by confrontation with its origin. It occurred to me then that from these properties of memory, a new working principle could be developed and which an extraordinarily interesting film might be built. Outwardly, the pattern of events of the hero's actions and behaviors would be disturbed. Excuse me. It would be the story of his thoughts, his memories, and dreams. And then, without his appearing at all—at least in the accepted sense of the traditionally written film—it would be possible to achieve something highly significant: the expression, the portrayal of the hero's individual personality, and the revelation of his interior interior world somewhere here there is an echo of the image of the lyrical hero incarnate in literature and of course in poetry he is absent from view but what he thinks how he thinks and what he thinks about build up a graphic and clearly defined picture of him this subsequently became the starting point of mirror so mirror or the mirror is it's a series of it's a series of sort of episodes that are based on the memory of a vaguely fictionalized version of Andre Tarkovsky, um, some from childhood, some from adulthood. The adult version of this character never appears on screen, though he is sometimes in conversation with people on screen. Um, he does several interesting things in this. One is that he went to... The house on the banks of the Volga where he grew up that had been taken down to the foundations. And he rebuilt the house on the same foundations based on photographs. Um, he wanted to like recreate in like springtime this house that he grew up in. And they shot some beautiful scenes there and it looks so good. Everything in this film looks great. He had a woman play his mother. Now, here's where it gets weird he had a woman play his mother. The same actress played the main character's wife later, right? And Tarkovsky slept with her. Calling Dr. (laughs)
1: Freud. Dr. Freud to the Art of Darkness studios. Dr. Freud's stat. We have an emergency here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right exactly dr freud yeah. yeah please please Dr. Freud. yeah please oh my emerge gosh, yeah.
1: from the emerge from the cocaine closet
0: <laughs> uh might want to bring some with you uh right. i don't think Indeed. andre needs yeah. any but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yikes that's pretty intense right now but but at the same time there, there I, this is this is For somebody who's listening, uh, who and I hope there's some people out here who are listening to this episode who haven't even watched our Tarkovsky film or have only kind of dabbled their toe. I'm just going to say, don't start with the mirror. Um, I think it's I think it's a brilliant film. It's what we we wouldn't call it uh, accessible, necessarily. It's. That thing he was doing in Andrei Rublev, where he's um, sort of the, the it's not narratively sequential, that is ramped up in to, uh, to 11 in the mirror. There is no, no narrative, there is almost no narrative coherence. Even within the scene itself, there's not a whole lot of narrative coherence. These are all, this film works much more like your memory might work, where it's sort of just moments kind of emerge you're not even clear what the significance of them are, but somehow they exist almost autonomously in your brain. And there's some striking imagery in this. The character that plays what we'll call Andre Tarkovsky's mother, the Andre character in here is called Alexander, I think. I might even be getting that wrong. But their, their barn is burning down. Their shed is burning down. And she's just sitting on this well watching it because she can't do anything about it. And then it's just this beautifully shot, dramatic little scene. There's this other scene where um, the traveling doctor walks by and the Andre Tarkovsky's mother character is sitting out. She's smoking a cigarette. Arseny has left. So she's out here on the countryside alone with her children. She's smoking a cigarette and this doctor is sort of lost and he comes up to her and he gets weird and kind of flirtatious. This is the guy who played Andre Rublev, Anatoly um, Solonitsyn. And, there's this amazing shot where he walks away and a huge wind picks up and like the grass starts blowing and it lasts for about a second. And he turns and he looks back at her and then he goes, continues on his way. It's very evocative. It's just like, cause it's not a, it's not a special effects movie. And this is, feels very strange. Like how do you get one? How do you get two seconds of high winds? Apparently Tarkovsky, rented a helicopter and they came in and they just like blew this but it's it's another thing it's like what is that if you're looking for this like this very um transcriptory kind of like what does that mean i don't know what that means i just know it makes me feel a particular way when two people have had an odd encounter they're trying to figure out that one of them is attracted to the other one one's feeling very isolated but also kind of repulsed and then the one walks away and suddenly the wind picks up intensely for like a second or two and then dies down it's very it's very striking um the film has all kinds of these there's an amazing maybe one of my favorite shots in any film i've ever seen and i mean, i don't it doesn't have a meaning i don't think um there's dream sequences, and Tarkovsky would often put stuff in black and white, so there's some black and white shots in here. Generally, what that means, just from a technical standpoint, is he's showing you a dream rather than an actual event, and there's this dramatic shot of this kind of well-appointed room, and it's like it's been abandoned, and there's a hard rain coming, and the ceiling has started falling in. So the rain the rain is making the ceiling fall in, and it's just so, it's so stirring, and like you know, like I said, he's trying to put a vibe into your head. I will tell you that vibe has been in my head for like two weeks now. I don't even and again, I don't have I a watch
1: this. Yeah, yeah, this it's, one it's... I am Tarkovsky pilled now. Oh, okay. congratulations. Yes.
0: yes. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds very good. Yeah, yeah, uh. yeah. Now, here's 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 a, a quote that Tarkovsky is not Tarkovsky's quote, but he used it a lot. It's a, a good to quote. Um, And I think this is important to keep in mind when watching Tarkovsky's films. And the quote goes like this, the less accessible a work is to the intellect, the greater it is. Now, that doesn't mean I'm trying to be obscurantist just to trick you. When he says less accessible, he's not saying like, oh, it's only accessible if you've read the right books. He's trying to say like, I don't want this to be intellectualizable. I want it to be something past you know, maybe not even past that. Something, something different than that. It's emotional. It's, it's not about, you know, what. Again, it's not about what it means exactly. It's about how it makes you feel. Um, okay. Um, okay. So now, if his previous films, if Tarkovsky's previous films had been criticized by the People's Commissariat for Education for being foreign, in incomprehensible. You can imagine that The Mirror, a story that has no particular narrative through line, (laughs) was even more uh, foreign and incomprehensible. Uh, This is true. They also got this one more than the other films was also criticized for being self-indulgent, which. I mean, I don't think self-indulgent is necessarily bad, but this movie is definitely self-indulgent. Right, I mean, it's 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 the story of his life, but it's told in a it's told in a in a, in a unique and idiosync in, in in his own way. But it's certainly it's autobiograph it's an autobiography, but autobiography, right? Um, so it certainly is self indulgence. Um, you know, but to me, again, to me, I think that's fine. I think you're allowed. I think you're allowed to do that, right? If it if it's good, it's good, right? Um, now he said. But it is interesting because here's something that Tarkovsky said about Western democracy. It's interesting because he he will kind of rail against individualism, but he's like the most individualist person imaginable. At the same time, here's something he said about Western democracy quote In the end, democratic gains in the West, which gave humans the possibility to experience freedom, essentially deprives Westerners of having faith in anyone except themselves. In a west, in a certain sense, this Western democracy is egotistical. See, Tarkovsky didn't really believe in freedom, not in like the American way, the, the way that Americans tend to think of it. He just he thought of freedom as like, you just decide what you're going to do it and you just do it. That's what it is. It doesn't matter what the rules are like. You can be free under any government would be his would be his take. It's all it's all about a, it's a it's a perspective to maintain. And he has this great quote somewhere. And I don't have it handy about basically um, Saying when they when people talk about artistic freedom, I don't know what they're talking about. Artists are the least free people I've ever met or I've ever known. They are duty bound to their art in a way that people who don't do this are never duty bound. Like he's basically saying, like I have to do this. I don't have a choice. I have to do this. How free can I possibly be? Does it matter if the people's commissariat doesn't like my work? You know, I'll just be subject to some other rule. So it's it's a very it's in some ways kind of hard to get your mind around his perspective, but in others it's, it's, there's a refreshing quality to it. I feel like Um now this movie, the reception, this was a film for the filmmakers. Um, It didn't do as well commercially as Solaris. Um, But when they, Played at the Dom Kino, the big film, the big uh, theater in Moscow, other filmmakers broke the glass door to the entrance hall trying to get in to see this film. They were going crazy for it. Um, Arseny, Andre's father, was finally impressed by Andre. He basically said uh, there's a beautiful quote like, and I, I love this, you know, imagine your father, you felt like your father, you know, he felt like his father abandoned him at one point. And now his father says to him, "My God, I did not realize how talented you are, man. Oof, that's like nice. <laughs> that's pretty great, man. Yeah. Um. Now here's what you're people... gonna make it, Andre. You're make it. That's you right. did it. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Now here's what uh, a leading figure in the Union of Cinematographers said say about the mir- the mirror. This film, quote, this film of Tarkovsky's is a failure." The man wants to tell something about time and something about himself. Maybe he su- succeeded in saying something about himself, but he failed to say something about, anything about time. Okay. Now, <clears throat> after the film is made, Larissa manages to get her and Tarkovsky moved, quote, to the country. Uh, basically, this almost abandoned village of Mayachnoi, uh, which is 20 hours from Moscow, down near the Caspian Sea, Um, there's this notion that he wanted a country house, but you know, he's now, he's, he still hasn't made, he's still not making any money. And, you know, I, I don't really, I'm going to plead ignorance here. I don't really know in the Soviet union of the sixties and seventies, could you be rich? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I I assume not like now, right. People had, but, but. People had some people had more money than other people, clearly. But right. like, you could
1: take a trip or you could maybe yeah a second house or. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he
0: makes he makes this big movie that's playing continuously for 15 years, but he's not rich. Right. right. No. But apparently he's doing OK for a while. It's kind of hard to under. It, it's weird mm. to trans. I'm so American that like I, I, I have right. a hard time, like contorting sure. myself to understanding right. the economic realities of living then. Anyway, he's living out in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't have a car and they're living out in this country house. Um, he did start to dream a little bit during after the mirror about what it might be like to make films in another country. Is there another way to do this? Do I have to be subjected to the Soviet, the people's commissariat and the union of cinematographers? Here's the thing. There was an unspoken rule that no film critics were allowed to say anything. No Soviet film critics were allowed to say anything good about Tarkovsky in print. He was Hmm. sort of gray listed, right? Again, Hmm. foreign, incomprehensible, but he never does anything that's outwardly censorable. So we kind of like, it's tricky. Um, um, He would apply to get several movies made after the mirror, including a production of Hamlet. He was obsessed with Hamlet. He said about Hamlet, the tragedy of Hamlet is the obligation before committing murder of accepting the laws of this world, of acting according to the rules. That is to say, giving up one's spiritual aspirations and becoming a common killer. That's where the tragedy is. In 1977, he would actually manage to put on a production for this, uh, the stage uh, of Hamlet with Solonitsyn, his favorite actor, who was slavishly devoted to him and appeared in most of his films. Um, uh, Margarita Terakova played Gertrude. This is Margarita Terakova, who was the woman who played his mother and his wife in The Mirror. Um, Larissa wanted to play that role. Larissa was always trying to play roles in his films too, and she never did. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, he tried to make a film about, uh, uh, uh he tried to make a Dostoevsky's uh, The Idiot. He tried to do that, that was not accepted. He tried to make a biopic about this German romantic poet, uh, and uh, writer, uh, E.T.A. Hoffman. That was, he finished a screenplay, but that was never accepted. Um, so finally in 1977, he basically decides to do what he did with Solaris and make some concession to commercialism and he applies to make the film stalker. Now I am of the opinion that stalker is his most accessible film. I, I, again, tricky about calling things best. If you've never seen a Tarkovsky film, I think this is a great place to start. I love this film. This is probably, you know, someday in the future when I want to watch a Tarkovsky film again, it's going to be a while because I've been in Tarkovsky land so much lately. But when I come back, I'll probably come back to Stalker. Um, It is the... When Criterion Channel became like a channel instead of just a collection of DVDs, and this may be true even still, it was the number one most streamed movie. Oh, is that Criterion right? Channel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, It's based on this novel Roadside Picnic, which uh, apparently it, the biography claims that... There was a point when basically every adult in the Soviet Union had read *Roadside Picnic*, <laughs> very popular book, right? It would be like it would be like adapting like I don't even know. I mean, what do we even read now? Uh, but but it's like adapting whatever the best-selling novel in the country is at the moment, right? Dan Brown or something. Um, the uh, and it was written by these two brothers, the Strugatsky brothers. The Strugatsky brothers were Strugatsky! Um, yeah. <laughs> I do that's like a,
1: <laughs> yeah that's a powerful name yeah powerful yeah. name yeah.
0: yeah uh the Strugatsky, the strugatsky brothers wrote the screenplay he brought brought them in to wrote this write the screenplay which you uh, imagine this dude you're a novelist you're a successful novelist and you're called in by this eccentric demanding filmmaker who you respect you think he's a good filmmaker and you come in but you're successful in your own right right you know you don't need this movie to be made and he comes in and Tarkovsky demands you write it. And then he wants you to write it again. And then and he doesn't like that version. He wants you to write it again. And he ends up making you write it 18 times. The screenplay? 18 mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Whoa, doggy. Yeah. 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 And then this final screenplay you wrote does barely only vaguely resembles the final movie that gets made. <laughs> Now, I'm going to tell you the generalized sort of plot summary of this thing, and then I'm going to give you another. Um, yeah. You yeah, some? no, go on. Go on. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. yeah. Um, The generalized sort of plot summary of this thing is <clears throat> there is in an unnamed country, there is a place called the zone. Now, something has happened at the zone. It may be a meteor crash. It may have been alien spacecraft. It's not clear what happens. In Roadside Picnic, it's sort of represented by like a like golden sphere, and Anyway, whatever the case is, it's protected by the military. Um, military expeditions have gone in, but apparently they have not come out. Right. It's filled with allure and kind of mystery. There is at least one person and maybe there's some implication that there's more than one, but we have um, the story of one of them. They're called the stalker and what a stalker is able to do. They understand how the zone works and they're able to take people in for a fee. So the whole film stalker based, on the stalker. Now, the zone is very strange. It changes based on your perception. There you have different routes. You can't take the same route in you took out. There's vague, ill-defined dangers going on um, in the in in the zone. Um, but at the core of the zone, the promise of the zone is that there's a room in there. And when you go into it, whatever your deepest desire is, will be manifested. And again, we're seeing that that Tarkovsky playing with the idea of the mind and the world being coextensive, the mind being inseparable from the world and the world being inseparable from the mind. Right. He's still he's still that theme is so attractive to him um, now. I'm not going to give away the the end of the the plot. Um it's actually a fairly straightforward. I mean, it's some guys go in, they go through a series of uh, a sequence of sort of trials and tribulations to get to the room and then, you know, the whole thing is about about the ends up being the the sort of the MacGuffin of getting to the room, right? Um uh a couple things about this. Now, I said I was going to give some sort of things about Tarkovsky's style to pay attention to to help you watch a Tarkovsky film. The one I want to focus on for the film Stalker is texture. Now, as soon as I say that, if you if you start watching any Tarkovsky film and you say to yourself, I'm going to look for texture, you will find it in every shot almost. Just these incredibly rich materials, surfaces, uh, uh, arrangements of things. And again, don't worry about what they mean. Just look at them and think about the fact that Tarkovsky's trying to tell you what's going on in the character's head based on these textures and the stalker film is so rich with this stuff rust and dripping and dirt and grass and mold and bones and water and pollution and concrete like it's every scene there's this beautiful scene of like this fire that had been burning and it's now it's just down to embers and he just hold he just he just pans over it very slowly and Again, I don't know what it means, but I feel a certain way when I see that bed of embers. It really strikes something fairly deep in me. Um, and then it, it does feel like it somehow ties what just happened to what's happening next in a way that I can't articulate, really. Um, so and, and it's not just in Stalker either. I'm kind of focusing on it here because I feel like he brought it to its highest art in Stalker. but it's But it's everywhere. The ocean in Solaris. Um, the, the, also, the trees in Slayers, the burning papers in his later film, Nostalgia, uh, the mud in, um, the, in the sac. There's this great scene with stepping in mud and the sacrifice, the clay in Andrey Rublev. There's a scene in Andrey Rublev where these monks are disagreeing Um, and the one monk who's leaving the monastery basically says, thank God, he he basically is accusing all the other painters of turning it into an art market of like being commercial when they're supposed to be monks. And he basically says, he has this great speech. He says, thank God I'm not talented and I don't have to deal with temptations that you all have to deal with. And I can remain, I can keep my faith because I have no talent. And then he marches off out of the monastery and he walks by this wood pile that's like the 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 wood pile that the monastery has stocked up for the summer, and it feels like it's infinite. Like he's walking for like a full minute past this pile of chopped wood, and it's just it's so intense. So these textures are constantly there, and when we were talking earlier about Tarkovsky being obsessive about detail and you know moving that one blade of grass. What he's trying to achieve is the perfect texture to encapsulate the emotional reality he's trying to convey. And does the one blade of grass make a difference? Maybe not. But once you start doing that, where do you stop? Right. Like you're going to have to you got to chase that dog to the end Um, to really, you know, thinking about these textures as. As Tarkovsky trying to talk to you about something that can't be articulated in words. I think that's the key. That's a key. that's one of the keys to watching a Tarkovsky film. Now, the production of Stalker is legendary. It is perhaps the most troubled film production. Again, superlatives, who knows? There's something more, but unbelievable challenges trying to make this film. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk in the After Dark. We're going to talk about whether or not this movie killed Andre uh, Tarkovsky. Pretty good suggestion that it might, it probably it probably did. But we're going to talk about more, more details about that.
1: Patreon.com um, slash Art of Dark
0: Pod if you want the After Dark for this yeah. and every episode. Every episode. That's right. That's right. Now, at first, they took about a year to shoot. Remember, 18 rewrites on the script. They took a year to shoot incredibly uncomfortable situations you're in these intense industrial scenarios it's not on a stage set they would go to abandoned factories and processing plants to try and film this and again you've got tarkovsky doing tons of shots he's adjusting a plate of grass while you're like sitting in a puddle like if you're on the crew you're like sitting in a puddle to get the right camera angle and tarkovsky's over there like adjusting the dust on a can of paint or something right just a terrible production They turn the film stock into uh, the Moss films, the Soviet Moss film labs. And it's this at the time, it was a somewhat experimental film stock, Kodak 5 uh, 5247. And there's some dispute about whether the film stock was defective or the lab didn't know how to handle it. Some combination of the two. But whatever the case is, they get the film back and it's dark and it's green and it looks like crap. The whole movie that they just spent a year shooting right and so the question is well what do we what do we do like what are we going to do and tarkovsky wanted to give up he he blames um, george uh, georgie Ru- ruberg there's a whole documentary about this aspect called um ruberg and tarkovsky the reverse side of stalker and ruberg had been his cinematographer on um, the mirror was a, a brilliant man in his own right. I mean, a, a guy that a lot of people call the genius as a cinematographer. Ruhrberg, <clears throat> this is kind of complicated. Ruhrberg and Larissa didn't get along, uh, Tarkovsky's wife. Larissa had wanted to play the wife of the stalker. Rurberg had convinced Tarkovsky that that wasn't a good idea. And they instead had this other woman play um, the stalker's wife. She's incredible in it. She's a very small role, but she's great. Um, and so Larissa hated Ruhrberg. And so when the film came back bad, there's some suggestion that Larissa convinced Tarkovsky that it was Rurberg's fault. Probably wasn't actually his fault. It's probably, again, some combination of the lab screwing up, some precautions not being taken, perhaps the film stock being bad, all of this. Whatever the case, Rurberg, one of the most talented cinematographers of his generation, this ruined his career. After this, he made over the next 20 or 30 years, he made two more. He worked on two more f- feature films. And otherwise, he was making like propaganda films and commercials. Um, uh, <laughs> Tarkovsky in all of this, supposedly, according to the biography, the stress of all this, he had a heart attack. He's not even that old. I mean, he's uh, 45 or so has a heart attack. Eventually they decide they reapply to get uh, for more budget to remake the entire film. The, the people's commissariat, they give him a, they give him some money, but it's a much lesser budget than he had initially. They hire a new cinematographer. They spend some time shooting. Andre is not happy with the new cinematographers work. He gets the film stock. And he's like, this, this got no zhuzh. This looks like crap none of it looks right it all looks bad and eventually at first um that new cinematographer decides to quit on his own he's like i get it i'm not i'm not living up to your standards that's okay i'll i'll leave tarkovsky ends up bringing him back because the concern is things are very different if he gets fired off of that sh- off that movie it's possible his career is trashed now too so tarkovsky allows him to kind of stay around but he's sort of like not doing anything Tarkovsky also had a reputation for doing everything himself anyway. So, you know, if it was up to Tarkovsky, nobody else would even be involved. It'd just be him, right? <laughs>
1: um, it's the Tarkovsky hour with right. Andre Tarkovsky, <laughs> starring right. Andre Tarkovsky, produced right. by, directed by,
0: right, right exactly. Um, C- catering, yeah, yeah um, catering. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Um, so a- anyway, I do kind of recommend watching this documentary, Ruberg and Tarkovsky, "The Reverse Side of Stalker," just because it's going to the. It does a couple of things. One thing. Uh, And I've probably played up there. There's an issue in talking about cinema where we can fall into the trap of giving all of the credit to the director for a good film. And certainly it's it's almost impossible to have a good film without good directing happening. But there's a lot of other parts and pieces, right? from the actor to to the grips and everything right i mean you know i you know you need a set built or whatever there's all kinds sure. of important jobs and and so that film is really good because it shows you it shows you again that this isn't wasn't just tarkovsky i mean his sort of insanity and obsessiveness is probably what contributed to its greatness it wouldn't have gotten reshot without a guy like tarkovsky that's for sure right um but anyway um <clears throat> Uh Ruberg also interestingly he refers to the filming of Stalker as a nuclear reaction spinning out of control until, until Tarkovsky lost his grip on reality. Um the documentary claims that Tarkovsky had Ruberg removed from the credits um despite the fact that Tarkovsky would have never bounced back and remade the film without Ruberg's help. It even alludes to the fact that Tarkovsky Tarkovsky used, quote, Stalinist methods in removing the name, something he also did in the assembly of a small run book he did later called uh, Book of Concordances that he worked on with a family friend, this woman, Olga Surikov. Tarkovsky in order to fire Ruberg and kind of have reason he leveraged this one time that he caught Ruberg drunk and hanging out with his floozy like off work hours I was like oh you're just a drunk I was like meanwhile Tarkovsky had spent years drinking every night after they after shooting um so anyway it's just it's you know you see him becoming uh becoming tyrannical um interestingly enough um Tarkovsky's journals that came out towards the end of his life or after he died, maybe um, called Martyrology. That's the name of his published diaries, Martyrology. He wrote that Rurberg was not only a terrible cinematographer, which just is not true. um, He said he was a terrible person. (laughs) Um, The issue with that is Tarkovsky often dictated his diaries to many people, including Larissa, his wife, who hated Rurberg. So, there's now this document by a great Soviet filmmaker saying how terrible Ruhrberg is as a person and as a cinematographer. It's published. It's read by tons of people in the Soviet Union. I mean, his career is over after working on this film. Um, so anyway, I guess my point here is Tarkovsky left more than one person sort of somewhat ruined in his wake. Right. In order to make these films. Mm. Um and maybe not even in order to make them just on the way to making them um anyway uh i have yeah, to say the... poking around
1: on the stalker wikipedia were you aware of the stalker burning man connection
0: yes we're gonna uh, okay yes. well All we can right. talk about it now i was gonna mention that in the in the after All dark right. um but yeah, yeah the the first the the cacophony society would um they they were inspired by this by the stalker and stalker and would like lead these trips out into quote unquote the zone and then when the cacophony society like kicked off burning man the first burning man was called stalker trip something yeah it was basically like they were like almost cosplaying zone stalker. trip number four yeah yeah they were almost cosplaying the stalker movie when they when the at the first burning man wild good to yeah. know yeah interesting stuff um Okay, so the third time they shot Stalker, they ended up going to this abandoned hydroelectric plant in Estonia. They shot for months. They had to pirate materials and stuff because their budget was so small. Like, the whole idea before is like, oh, we'll have a bunch of, like, trucks and armored vehicles and stuff. And, like, at, at this third production, they were just like, oh, you can have one armored vehicle and one tank. And a meager budget for supplies and materials this is why when you look at the film you think about it it's like if you got the right set this movie would actually be cheap to make it's like they're just in like tunnels and in rooms like there's not there's no like built the sets aren't really built at all i mean they added materials to them to get a particular look but um it's quite interesting um another thing that happens too between early iterations <clears throat> excuse me early iterations of stalker and the final iterations of stalker at first the stalker himself is just in it for the money he just wants people to pay him to take him into the zone and it's like lucrative for him and the final version and i think this is an interesting change in the final version the stalker is doing it because he wants to restore faith in people he wants to show people a miracle basically. And by showing them a miracle, he's going to elevate the spirituality of the people. Right. And I think there's an aspect in which Tarkovsky is trying to do that. He at least thinks he's trying to do the same thing. He frequently will talk in interviews about the fact that modernity is spiritually decadent, that we're lacking entirely in spirituality. Right. And that an artist part of what an artist should be doing is trying to restore or elevate or cultivate that spiritual sense we're going to talk more about what he means when he says spiritual when we talk about his last film but keep that in mind that say tarkovsky art 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 is a almost a religious enterprise and and not just making it but in, in interacting with it, right? It should be elevating you somehow, mm. and not in a chintzy way. Like not in a simple like, oh, I watched that movie about a um, a person in some circumstance, and now I feel more sympathetic to people like that. It's not like quite like that. It, it's a little more complicated and and difficult to articulate than that, and, and that's why he's got to do it in these these weird, these strange films, right? Um, now. Again, we're gonna talk. There is a there is a scene in uh in that film, they're filming in June, and there's a scene where snow starts to fall. And that actually happened. It looks like snow anyway. But the next day, all the leaves fell off the trees. They're in this abandoned industrial part of Estonia. There's reddish foam coming down the river, right? there's some nasty stuff going on where they're shooting and this is going to lead into the question of did stalker kill andre tarkovsky which we're going to talk about in the after dark patreon.com slash dark now the film's reception stalker when it finally comes out when they finally managed to give birth to this thing that you know improbable that it even got made in the end right um when it's Uh, Upon its release, the film's reception, I'm just reading from Wikipedia here, the film's reception was less than favorable. Officials at Ghost Kino, a government group otherwise uh, known as the State Committee for Cinematography, were critical of the film. I'm being told that Stalker should be faster and more dynamic. Tarkovsky replied, the film needs to be slower and duller at the start so that the viewers who walked into the wrong theater have time to leave before the main action starts. It needs to it needs to be faster, means to be more dynamic. He basically says, if you want that, leave. <laughs> I love I love that. Even if they're kind of right a little bit, maybe, I do love that his reaction is like, no, you no, no, it's not gonna be faster. I feel personally attacked, <laughs> right? Um, the ghost Kino rep- representative then stated that he was trying to give the point of view of the audience. Tarkovsky supposedly retorted, I am only interested in the views of two people. One is called Brisson, another act, uh, director who he loved, and one called Bergman. Uh, more recently, reviews of the film have been highly positive. It earned a place in the BFI's 100 Greatest Films of All Time. Uh, the group's critics listed Stalker at number 29, directors ranked it at number 30. I hate this numbered ranking, like, oh, well, it's number well, 29. Is it, is it so quite it's as good better. as
1: The Godfather 2 or is it, yeah, it is. So you know, weird. it's like it, so it, they're both the, great. These yeah. lists are helpful for people who maybe don't have access to like a formal film education right like yeah. you can just you could do a hell of a lot worse as a young person and then like grab one of those lists and oh, just start true. watching everything yeah 100 they helpful for yeah. that yeah,
0: yeah. The, the the specific ranking is always yeah, but you're it's, right it's dumb like, yeah, yeah you're right um here's one thing i i, I thought was quite interesting um uh Critic Derek Adams. I got two interesting things about reception. Critic Derek Adams of the Time Out Film Guide has compared Stalker to Apocalypse Now, also released in 1979, and argued that as a journey to the heart of darkness, Stalker looks a good deal more persuasive than Coppola's. Interesting. Um, It was also, where was it on here? I must have missed it. Um, the Vatican put it on their list of films. You should look. I don't know if you've ever looked at the list of like Vatican's favorite Based. films. It's pretty cool. It's a good list. Yeah. And Stalk, cool. stalkers on Andre Rublev is also on that list. I think. Yeah, they're both on there. Um, let me read you just one thing from stalker. Uh, like one thing, a quote from the actual screenplay, because I haven't done that. And sometimes there's these beautiful monologues in these films. And I just want to do at least one. <clears throat> uh I think this is the writer talking yeah the writer so the two there's two characters stalker brings in one's just called the professor and one's called writer the writer is a successful writer he's looking for inspiration like he's going to go into the room the zone room that will give him whatever he desires and he hopes he'll be inspired but then it's sort of like well if I was inspired and I didn't have to struggle like what's the point of writing. Like he comes to a sort of a spiritual crisis once he actually approaches the room, right? But here's a quote from him uh, towards the end of the film. Another experiment, experiments, facts, or the absolute truth. But there's no such thing as facts, especially here. Everything here is someone's invention. He's talking about in the zone because it's all projections of people's minds. All this is someone's idiotic invention. Can't you tell? You, of course, you are dying to know whose invention, but why? What good will it do you to know? Whose conscience will be bothered by it? Mine? I have no conscience, only nerves. Um, Some sob abuses you, you're hurt. Another sob praises you and you're also hurt. You put your heart and soul into work. They'll devour you. They even devour filth in your soul. They're all literature. They They all have sensory deprivation. I'm sorry, they're all literate. They all have sensory deprivation. They all keep crowding them excuse me, they all keep crowding around you. Journalist, editor, critic, a constant stream of women, all of them clamoring for more. What kind of writer am I if I detest writing? If it's torture for me, a painful, shameful occupation, something akin to squeezing out hemorrhoids. I used to think my books would help someone to become better, but nobody needs me. If I die, they'll devour somebody else. I want to change them, but they changed me to fit their own image once the future was only a, continu- a, continu- a continuation of the present all its changes loomed somewhere on the horizon but now the future is a part of the present are they prepared for this they don't want to know anything all they do is gobble so i, I just lo- I, I love some of these, these these asides and bits and monologues um all yeah. they do is gobble all they do is gobble um Oof. yeah yeah oh there's a great Oh, there's a great story about um, the first stalker, um, the character. His name is Porcupine. He's not even in the p- film, but they tell a story about it. And just give you a sense of the 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 kind of nice little narrative bits that are in Stalker. Our stalker in the film tells the story of Porcupine. Porcupine's brother, I think, had a terminal illness. And so Porcupine went to the zone and tried to get into the room because he wanted to um, cure his brother's disease. But. The room gives you what your deepest unspoken desire is, and the porcupine's deepest desire was not to cure his brother, but was to be rich, and so he walked out of the room filthy rich, but his brother still terminally ill. Right. So this is the kind of tricks this place could play on you. Right. I love that little narrative turn of like, oh, like I love that. Like, reminds me of Borges. It does. It is a very, it is a very Borgesian turn. I love that notion of like you don't actually know what you want, not really, right? right. True. Yeah. Mm. Um. Good stuff. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. After Stalker, um, Boyetsava, uh, the biographer says there was a practice in the USSR, and this is interesting. Think about how clever this is from the the governmental authority perspective. What they often did with artists who got some credi- credibility outside of the Soviet Union. Is they would suppress you like they did Tarkovsky in subtle ways, I mean, important ways, but not he wasn't not allowed to do anything. They just kind of slightly tied to champ you down, right? So what they would do, and they did this to Tarkovsky after Stalker came out, they would give you some big award. And that way, if you left the country and you tried to complain and say, Oh, the you know, the Soviet Union is repressing me, they'd say, Well, you won this big award. What do you mean they're repressing you? Right? So it's like they'll like your critics aren't allowed to say anything good about you. They'll make it so your films can only appear as matinees. They'll do all these other things. But then in 1980, they give Tarkovsky the people's artist of Russia award. So then if he's in Italy and he says something about how repressed he's being, it's like, well, didn't you win the people's art? Like, didn't you win like the biggest award they have? What do you mean? Oof. Right, man. I
1: don't like any of this. No, I don't like thinking about any of this. No, no, right, right.
0: So Okay, so after Stalker comes out... And you just
1: want to make your art, right? Right. That's all he wanted. You got to deal with a million other little... It's all politics. All of it.
0: This is the thing. He never speaks out negatively about communism, about the Soviet Union, like the government. Like, he's not political, really. Um, It's not even clear he's against them, necessarily. He just has his own kind of vision, and it doesn't run... It's not even that it runs against. It's just, like, it runs... It doesn't run right in line with. it. It's its own thing, sure. right? Yeah. Um. He he runs into uh he meets this guy in uh Italy or no this guy this Italian guy comes to Moscow uh Tonino Grera, who's a great screenwriter who's worked with Fellini um he wrote Blow Up and Zabriskie Point he hooks up with Tarkovsky and he basically tells Tarkovsky come to Italy come to Italy and just stay here. We'll we'll make films the rest of your life. We'll make films in Italy. It's all good. um, Yeah. And Tarkovsky kind of considers it. Um, at one point, he gets invited to a film festival in Stockholm and he decides he's going to make a break for it. He coordinates with some Swedes who are going to give him refuge, refuge. He has a chaperone um, from Soyuz, Soyuz Sport Film, which apparently is some film industry thing. And obviously they're there to keep their eyes on him. Um, Tarkovsky is spirited away into the Swedish countryside and stays hides out at this house for a couple of days. And then in a sort of a fit of remorse that he'd never get to see his sons again, never get to see Russia again. I mean, he loves Russia. He ends up coming back and he goes back to goes back to Moscow um, now. Eventually, though, it starts to become obvious that he's going to have to leave if he ever wants to make films again. Stalker is the last film that he makes um, in, and he didn't shoot it all in Russia, but it's the last film he makes through Moss Film and, and as part of the Soviet enterprise. Um, but as this departure is looming in the early '80s, he becomes a nervous wreck. Um, he starts beating on Larissa. From time to time, drinking more, biting his nails or stories about him biting his nails. He starts up a a relationship with some country girl who's like 18 years old. He um, he uh, he beats his stepdaughter at one point um, for coming home late. He's like getting intense and aggro and screwed up. And it's all because of this anxiety about not all because i mean a lot of it's because he's an asshole 90 percent of it's because he's an asshole but the circumstantial component of his is is like he wants to leave the country but he doesn't want to and he's anxious about it all these things march of 1982 with the help of uh, tonino guerrera he signs a contract to work on on an italian film uh uh, i'm sorry with an italian film production company to make this film nostalgia um, April 4th, 1982, one day after his 50th birthday, Tarkovsky leaves Russia for good. Now, part of the reason the last thing that sort of convinced him this was the move, it was his 50th birthday. There was no birthday celebration in the press, which is apparently is like a, a that would be that would be a normal thing to do. Two years ago, you won the people's award for of people's artist award right and now the convention would be there'd be some kind of celebration for your 50th birthday nothing they didn't do any retrospective at the at the cinema they didn't publish any books the books were published no there was no it didn't matter to anybody that it was just 50th birthday and to him that was the sign of like i've made these movies like i'm never gonna get it it's never gonna happen here i'm always gonna be held back by these people so he's off to he's off to Italy. um now, Nostalgia, I'm not going to talk about nostalgia much because I want to talk about Sacrifice's last film and then and and and, and kind of bring it home, but we'll mention nostalgia briefly. Um, this is co-written with Tonino uh, Guerrera. Um, it's worthwhile to watch, um, and I've probably required to to really understand what Tarkovsky is doing overall. Um there is something interesting about it. There's a bunch of interesting things about it. I mean, there's a scene of a guy setting himself on fire, which is pretty intense. Um, it's really about here's the plot and it'll kind of tell you and, and just sort of read Tarkovsky into this. He's in Italy now. He's never going home again. I don't think he ever sees his sons again after 1982 or other members of his family. Um, he's in exile now, and he's not even like a political refugee. He literally would say later, like, I had to leave because I, ne- I I needed a job. Like I would have been unemployed otherwise. Um, but here's the plot. The Russian writer Andrei Gorkachov travels to Italy to research the life of 18th century Russian composer Pavel, Pavel Saznovsky, who lived there and committed suicide after his return to Russia. He and his comely interpreter, Eugenia, travel to a convent in the Tuscan countryside to look at frescoes by Piero Dello Francesca. Andre decides at the last minute that he does not want to enter. That's the plot. There's a bunch of other stuff going on, but that's like a big part of it. Now, we need to talk about long shots briefly because I mentioned how how intense these long shots were. Um, and it's part of the, it's, it's my last key to Tarkovsky pilling you about okay long shot. I've always liked long shots. Like if you watch uh, Children of Men, there's some great long shots. There's uh, there's a lot of powerful filmmaking that a lot of the power derives from going a long time without editing. Rope, Um, rope, yes. Russian Ark, the famous film Russian Ark. I've never uh, seen Russian
1: Ark. Ooh, check that out. are you familiar with this? I'm it's, not. I, I vaguely it, have heard of it. It's a film that walks you through like the entirety of Russian history from a certain point of time. It, they they like basically shut down the the Hermitage in Saint Petersburg for like okay. four days or something. I don't even know the whole story. It's like mm-hmm. thousands of extras. It's a unique film. Yeah. Would Sounds probably cool. be a good follow up for you after, after yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. That I might guess. be cool. It's sort of like a slight different, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah. Long shots are fascinating. Yeah, yeah rope, yeah,
0: rope is fun. It, and, and and even in like even in sort of more popcorny films, like um, I'll go as I'll go like the most mainstream thing ever, um, the Daredevil TV show that was on Netflix. Okay, kind of silly, right? However. There is a fight scene in there that is like four minutes with or three or four minutes with no edits, and he's fighting in a hallway, and it's and he's getting more and more exhausted as time goes on. It's incredible. It's like one of my wasn't, favorite. Wasn't there uh,
1: in True Detective season one? Wasn't there uh, a yeah. famous shot where they're they're he's with yeah, like it, the the he, meth
0: yeah he's with the he's with the motorcycle gang and they go into the hood to like do yeah yeah like it's there's helicopters and like yeah it's so crazy and it goes on and on and on and and the the coordination required to pull that off was must have been and 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 tarkovsky now tarkovsky never has these elaborate coordination efforts where like a perfectly timed thing has to happen but like there's a lot of long shots. I mean, Sacrifice opens with a, it's a, I don't know how long it is, five minutes, four minutes. And his, something like his average shot time is around a minute. Now, a minute doesn't seem like that long, but literally watch, watch a random movie that came out last year and just look for the edit. You'll see one within like 20 seconds. And that's fine in a way, but like there is a certain, there is a certain effect that is accomplished by holding the camera longer right now this is part of this book his his book is called sculpting in time right Tarkovsky believed that cinema was the only art form that really dealt with time Um, and I think he has a point I mean clearly music has a time component but um, there's also there's also rules to that time component in music, right? There's there's like a there's well there's rhythm and these sorts of things. And in in film, he's very concerned with this notion of time pressure, of the basically the longer you hold a shot, the the more the pattern of how time passes gathers in intensity. There's there is an aspect of a person watching a film, especially if you were you watch a lot of movies and Kevin, I don't know about you. I actually when I watch films, sometimes I do start thinking about the production of just like, how did they sure. get that shot? Like, oh yeah. What did they have to do to make that happen? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that sort of stuff. And it's yeah. funny, I will mention that to other people if I'm watching something. Sometimes they're like, What do you like, what do you why do you care? Like, I don't know. That's like that looks like that's hard to pull off. Just Fascinating. Like, you know? Yeah. You watch like drone shot stuff, especially like you know, you could see. You can literally, if you were just like watch films sequentially, you could see when like the drone was invented, right? (laughs) Suddenly the shots change. Anyway, um, I want to read a little bit about time, um, from this sculpting in time book. This is of course Tarkovsky's voice. "Quote: Time is a condition for the existence of our I." It is like, and that like I, the capital I, it is like a kind of culture medium that is destroyed when it is no longer needed, once the links are severed between the individual personality and the conditions of existence, right? Remember, the links are severed between the individual personality and the conditions of existence, like a like an edit. And the moment of death is also the death of individual time. The life of a human being becomes inaccessible to the feelings of those remaining alive, dead for those around him. Time is necessary to man so that, made flesh, he may be able to realize himself as a personality. But I am not thinking of linear time, meaning the possibility of getting something done, performing some action. The action is a result, and what I'm considering is the cause which makes man incarnate in a moral sense. History is still not time, nor is evolution. They are both consequences. Time is a state in which there lives the salam. Uh, uh, sorry, time is a state. The flame in which there lives the salamander of the human soul. So you get some occult esoteric references, but he's also hinting to you why he why these long shots. It's like you can't actually depict uh, reality uh emotional reality with edits they they interfere with your ability to have a coherent emotional experience um anyway um now working in europe there are some things that are different about working in europe you can imagine you've been repressed by this soviet system as tarkovsky was but suddenly you're now in europe you're now in the studio system even though it's not quite hollywood the way we know about it's different it's got financial incentives that simply didn't exist in your participation in the soviet world um there's an interesting thing about this so um let me read quickly from the bio this isn't a long one um this is oski's voice i understood all that when i was working um hold on sorry 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 uh they have also i must say developed Pretty good technology and they have good actors, speaking about the European system. Of course, it costs a huge amount of money. I understood all that when I was working on nostalgia. It's difficult to work here. Everything is converted into money, and I had to make the film on very little means. For the first time, I found myself in unusual circumstances, which I've been inwardly opposing. There's a system of putting pressure on the director's thoughts here. The question is always put this way Is there money for it? I had to give up sh- shooting certain scenes in Moscow because I was exceeding the budget. But it's difficult to maintain the necessary creative focus under new circumstances. Many things get in the way. And then, one more thing from the interviews thing about money. Um, doo, doo, doo. Okay. This is uh, Tarkovsky being interviewed in 1984. Uh, hence, I believe that there's only one path, and regardless of whether it is good or bad, there is no alternative. Artists must be true to their talent and must attempt to explain for themselves why they live. And they must distinguish certain vitally important ideals, spiritual and ethical ideals that help them and the people to develop spiritually. Again, he's talking about spiritually, spiritually. Why are, do contemporary artists want quick reimbursement for what they do? Not that long ago, approximately 100 years ago, artists believed that they should simply work and that their fate was decided by God's will and not for them to worry about. Today, artists immediately demand payment in return for their work, as never before. Even uh, Shaliyapin, in his time, said that only birds sing for free. Perhaps I'm taking this out of context, but it seems to me that this—that it is difficult to discuss the spirituality of an artist who makes such pronouncements. On the other hand, however, artists have never been so horrendously provided for as they are now. Okay. Now, again, we're talking about this whole spiritual thing. Uh, nostalgia comes out... <clears throat> And Tarkovsky believes he has finally has a chance to win the grand prize wow. at Cannes. Um, and there's a little bit of an issue with this. OK, so, you know, one thing is, oh, I don't care about money, you know, but the other hand, I want to win this big prize. I've been trying to win for years. Um, didn't he win it at? Uh, didn't he win it with Solaris? Sorry, he didn't win that. He wanted to win the, the Palm Dior. Yeah, he wanted d'Or. to win the big okay. boy. Yeah, Gotcha. Yeah. Um and uh, and partially because it was more money. You get more money when you win that thing, but also the status and the esteem. And he felt like he deserved it after all of this. And you know, in, in a sense, maybe he, you know, in a sense, he probably did deserve it to some degree, right? If anybody deserves it, he's certainly in the running. Um, now he uh, in can in con, this is a quote from the bio with nostalgia, it, sort of in competition. He was struck by the news that the eldest of the classic film. Uh, classic French directors Robert Bresson who Tarkovsky adored remember he had two audience members Bresson and Bergman um, had decided to participate in the competition truly fate is sometimes inventively cruel to those who aspire to great heights for Tarkovsky to have the director he respected most as a competitor this was too much even for an ambitious egotist Bresson had, uh, who had never competed with anyone, had come to Cannes in the year of his seventy-fifth birthday to take the crown. He announced as much in every interview he gave. Fate had brought Tarkovsky into a battle with almost the only idol he had. There was a. Th- this was a trial, even for a propagator of high spirituality. Right? Okay. Um. Let's see. Uh da, 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 da. uh he and his friends Tarkovsky and his friends watched uh the ca- the the Brisson film uh L'Argent. Uh they didn't think much of it. Um they thought that you know Tarkovsky would still win anyway. He um he gave it a, he gave a speech about this and then he said wait uh at the end of this press conference he said wait ladies and gentlemen I have an announcement. The thing is that I've been told that Monsieur Bresson allegedly made a statement that only for the grand prize. If this is true, then I must tell you that I too will only settle for the grand prize. An excited buzz swept over the audience. A scandal had appeared within the intrigue of the festival. Tarkovsky's statement seemed odd after he had rambled about a person to develop his spiritual qualities. That's what he'd talked about in his speech. And then he would basically said, I'm going to win this thing. That's the only reason I'm here. His challenge to the classic director director and grand old man of cinema clearly cost Tarkovsky some of his dignity, but he did not notice this. The odious material element in the form of the monetary prize had made him forget about the principles he had been declaring, and he forgot about them easily. One might have expected Tarkovsky's statement to have sounded differently. Um, such a, a quote, I think that the competition between me and a classic figure for French cinema is inappropriate and unethical, he might have said. This would be quite an unacceptable position, especially as he could not influence the situation in any way. But Tarkovsky acted differently, claiming that he was ready for a fight. Now, here is another problem with him trying to win the grand prize. (sighs) There was somebody else on the jury, and that person was Bondarchuk. Bondarchuk, the man who made War and Peace, the father of Natalia Bondarchuk, who nearly killed herself in desperate heartbreak over Tarkovsky years before. And now Tarkovsky's trying to win this award, and on the jury is the father of Natalia Bondarchuk. So, this all kind of chickens come home to run in a certain way, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you made your bed. Yeah. Now you're going to lie yeah. in it. Yeah. Okay. Right might yeah maybe make some friends try to make some friends along the way you know okay now <laughs> now uh so he doesn't win he wins i believe he won i believe he won the special jury prize for that but he did not win the palm d'or um i i think it is interesting to take a moment here for a guy who is constantly talking about the necessity of spiritual development and enrichment and the necessity for films to to spiritually enlighten the masses and this sort of yet a guy who um stepped on so many so many people's toes and treated so many people poorly what does he mean by spiritual right like i feel like that's a fair question like what do you what do you mean like you're you're talking about how all these all their mainstream films are trash and yet like you know 50 50 whether somebody encounters you in their world right like yeah right right. (laughs) you know what do you mean it's another
1: vibe (laughs)
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? And it it kind of is. It kind of is. Now, let me give you let me give you one quick thing, a couple quotes from him and then we're going to talk about uh, sacrifice and we're we're almost done. We're in 1984, he dies in 1986, so just bear with me for a minute. We're almost there. Bringing You're you crushing
1: home. it, Brad. This is another core uh, episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. Brad is bringing us mm-hmm. home. I'm Tarkovsky mm-hmm. pilled. I want to watch Mirror, good. and then I want to give
0: Stalker okay. another try for sure. Yeah, I would. I would give Stalker a try. Stalker is a good. Um, you know, I don't advocate for smoking a little weed, but mm. if you want to watch, if you want to watch a movie under the influence of said uh, substance, that might be the one.
1: Well, I've got a lot of uh, cold medicine right here, okay. Brad. So okay. that might be the the next best thing. <laughs>
0: okay. Fair enough. Oof. Fair enough. Uh, here's a quote from an interview in 1984, uh, Tarkovsky interview about spirituality. "Quote: I think the time has come to say exactly what I have in mind when I use the word spirituality, For we have already been accustomed to this word, but it is sufficiently abstract when speaking of sp- spirituality's presence and artwork with the word spirituality. I first of all have in mind a person's interest in what has been called the meaning of life. That is the first step, at least. People who ask themselves this question can no longer sink below this level. They will develop and move onward. What do we live for? Where are we going? What is the meaning of our presence on this planet over the course of we will flatter one another, the 80 years or so that we live on the earth? The people who do not ask themselves these questions or have not yet asked them are individuals without spirituality. In other words, they exist on the level of animals. Animals don't ask themselves such questions. I think that's a fair that's a fair point. That's an aspect of spirituality, or I can see that as being an aspect of spirituality for sure. sure. Um, Now, in another place, he talks about the real the requirement for real spirituality, real spiritual development is a willingness to sacrifice uh, a willingness to give up that which is closest to us in some attempt to get closer to God or or. For some, you know, you're asking, what is the what is the meaning of life? Well, Tarkovsky might have said the meaning of life is to sacrifice yourself for something beyond yourself. That is also inherent in what he's talking about in spirituality. Um, uh, So Tarkovsky escaping the Soviet Union, it's easy to see it as like, well, he was just trying to escape this repression. But if you think about how dedicated he was to his art form for him leaving the Soviet Union was sacrificing his family. He never gets to see his his sons again. It's sacrificing his homeland. He loved Russia. It's sacrificing everything he ever knew for the purpose of continuing to make films, right? And if art is his religion, he gave up all of it to continue pursuing his religion. In his last film is, oh, let me read, I'm going to read one little thing, a letter he wrote to his father after he left, after he left the Soviet Union. Quote, Dear Father, I am very sad to hear that you've been feeling as if I've chosen the role of an exile and that I'm all but abandoning my Russia. I do not know for whom it is advantageous to interpret in such a way the difficult situation in which I have found myself, thanks to many years of persecution by the management of Goskino and particularly its president, Philip Irmash. Maybe you have not counted, but my over 20, to 20 year career in Soviet cinema, I have been hopelessly unemployed for around 17 years. Goskino did not want me to work. I was being bullied all this time, and the last straw was the scandal in Can in connection with the dishonorable acts of Bondarchuk. Remember, Bondarchuk, who, you know, yeah, who, as a member of the festival's jury and incited by his superiors, tried to do all he could so that I would not receive an award for the film Nostalgia. Now, Okay, Um, so a little bitterness, but this point about him sacrificing, he makes his final film is the sacrifice. Okay, now I'll give you just a general premise quickly. Um, The film centers on this guy, Alexander. Alexander used to be a stage actor. He played Hamlet, etc., who gave up the work to be a journalist and critic and lecturer on aesthetics for which he frequently sort of. Uh, chides himself that he's a lecturer in aesthetics. It seems kind of silly to him. Um, he lives in the house with his wife, his stepdaughter, and a son that's named just little man. Um, they're celebrating his birthday. He lives out in this small community by the sea and a few people come by. One is the doctor that performed the surgery on his, uh, a surgery on his son, uh, and, uh, their friend, uh, Otto, Who's a part-time postman who is also a collector of supernatural events, and he recounts a few of these supernatural events that he has he has collected over the years. Um, while they're celebrating Alexander's birthday, an announcement comes across the TV that basically nuclear nuclear Armageddon is happening. The world is going to end. Um. Now they all react to this slightly differently. Alexander becomes convinced. That he can make a deal with God to prevent nuclear holocaust, the end of the world, but he has to give up everything. And he does or he makes an attempt to um, weirdly and kind of what I think of Islam as almost a strange diversion, but I suppose it makes sense. It's it's sort of to seal the deal. Otto, the postman who who collects um supernatural events convinces Alexander that to really do this, he needs to sleep with his sir his one of his servants, who is basically an Icelandic witch. He sort of has to coerce her into doing this. It's part of the whole deal, okay. right? Okay. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, the film, I mean, the film is beautifully shot. It it's 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 filmed on this um uh this place called uh, Narsal, uh, which is a peninsula on the island of Gotland in Sweden. It's very sort of starkly beautiful. And it feels what well, Tarkovsky did a bunch of cool things here. But it feels like the end of the world there somehow already, even though it's kind of beautiful in its way. It feels like there's nobody else on the planet but the people who show up in the, in the picture itself. Um, let me give you one good quote from it like from stalker this is this is um this is before alexander realizes the world's going to end but it's a bit that i quite liked and it's clearly tarkovsky talking to us quote all of our technical progress has only provided us with comfort a sort of standard and instruments of violence for keeping power we use the microscope like a cudgel savages are more spiritual than we are as soon as we make a scientific breakthrough we put it to use in the service of evil." And as for standards, some wise man, uh, sorry, and as for standards, some wise man said that st- sin is what is unnecessary. And if so, our civilization is built on sin from beginning to end. The notion that our culture is defective, built on imbalance, that it is too late to solve. At last, I know what Hamlet meant. He was fed up with windbags. If only someone could stop talking and do something instead, or at least try. Um. Yeah. Yeah, so kind of intense. Um, And I I think, thinking this is the last film Tarkovsky made, right? Um, It's called The Sacrifice. It's about this guy who's trying to, he's desperately trying to save the world. You have to think about what Tarkovsky thought he was doing with these films. He was trying to add something to the spiritual development of people. He was trying to restore some kind of uh, enlightenment to the degradation of modernity and he'd given up everything in his life to continue doing it. And again, maybe that's too serious, but that's what Tarkovsky thought he was doing, right? Maybe he needed to have a laugh <laughs> and chill a little bit, but that's what Tarkovsky thought he was doing. And that's how serious he took this stuff. Um, now, I will give you a quick thing on the reception. I really do recommend this movie. Um, it's It's not my favorite of them, um, but man, it's got it's it's got its moments. And we're going to talk about um, uh, just give you tell you what the reception was. Uh, It won the second uh, uh, it won. It won a bunch of awards. Uh, He got his third Palme d'Or nomination. He won his second uh, special jury prize uh uh he won a third for presk uh, for presky's fr- prize um he won a bunch of other awards uh it won the bafta award for best foreign uh, language film uh selected uh as the swedish entry for the best foreign language film at the 59th academy awards um let's see approval i don't care about that oh this one was also added to the vatican uh list of 45 great films um yeah so uh Oh, I said earlier that Stalker was, I think Stalker was not, it's this film, it's the sacrifice and Andre Rublev that are on the Vatican's list of films, um, which is interesting because I think there are Christian elements to this film, but I, there's also like, there's also sort of pagan elements. I think the way that I interpret it, I mean, this whole sleeping with the witch to make a deal with God thing, uh, I, I don't know, I, but the Vatican has 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 chose, has chose it to be on their list. Um, now we're, we're very close to the end here, but I do need to talk about one technical problem that or big, one big technical problem that happened during the filming of sacrifice, which I think is poetically perfect, uh, in some ways, basically the last scene that Tarkovsky ever filmed was burning down the house. Alexander's burning down his house as a final sacrifice, right? I don't need my house. I don't need anything. I just want the world not to end whatever I have to do to make the world not end. They built this house specifically to burn it down. And Sven Nykvist, the cinematographer who also worked with Ingmar Bergman, had tried to convince Tarkovsky to use more than one camera. Tarkovsky basically said, I don't need to use more than one camera. They set this house on fire and the camera jams. The house burns down. They They weren't able to shoot it. They shot like a few seconds of it, right? So what do they do? This is literally Tarkovsky trying to get... He doesn't know this yet, but he's trying to get the last shot of his life and the camera jams. Now, they spend the next two weeks building the house again and rigging it to burn in exactly eight minutes and ten seconds. This time, the camera doesn't burn, but the film just ends. Like, if you watch it, it just... It's over. It just stops. And the reason why is they literally ran out of film. The reel ended and the house continued to burn. So I don't there's just something about you know it's basically the last scene he shoots. It's reflective of his whole career because Literally every step of the way, Tarkovsky had to fight to get films made. I suppose you always have to fight to get a film made. But, you know, shooting Stalker several times over, fighting the Soviet authorities, you know, just all of these issues, having to flee the country, you know, flee your homeland to make movies, all of this stuff. And even the last shot just can't get the freaking thing done. You know what I mean? Um and it's interesting. I mean, the way it ends, it's its not it's uncertain whether nuclear arm uh, Armageddon actually happens. That's kind of what I like about the film. And he's sure an uns- ambiguous ending is always something. But this guy gave up everything in his life in the film to make sure it didn't happen. We don't know. And it's similar to Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky's trying to tell you something about in his life and in this film about making the big sacrifice. And then did it actually do anything? Was it did it did the sacrifice count some way? He goes back to Rome October of 1985 and he's already sick. He's got a cough. He thinks it might be like some like leftovers from his childhood tuberculosis or bronchitis or something. By December of 1985, he's diagnosed with cancer. During while he's got cancer, he finishes this book, Sculpting in Time. Um, by December of 1986, he's dead. Uh, age 54. Uh, lung cancer. Let me read two little things uh actually let me just read one little thing from the biography and then we're they're pretty much done we're going to talk about did stalker kill him in the after dark patreon.com slash art of dark pod including some uh and also talk about some other spooky elements and weird correspondences and coincidences in Tarkovsky's life um one last little thing Tarkovsky on death Um. Do do do. Sorry. Let's see. <clears throat> this is Tarkovsky's words. Does death frighten me? I think that death doesn't exist at all. There's only an act of some sort, painful in the form of suffering. When I think about death, I think about physical suffering, but not about death as such. And death, in my view, simply doesn't exist. I don't know. Once I dreamt that I had died, and it was similar to truth. I could feel such liberation such unimaginable lightness that maybe it was this feeling of lightness and freedom that had given me the impression that I was dead that is I abandoned all ties with this world anyway I don't believe in death there's only pain and suffering and uh, and people often confuse death and suffering I don't know maybe when I face it directly I will get scared and I will reason differently it's very hard to say and yeah, that's he died in uh, actually ended up dying in Paris 1986, right. December 1986, just in time to see the sacrifice do well. He got to see it come out. You know, uh, that's it. Didn't get to work on anything else. It was over. Man,
1: and I and I wonder, I wonder where he is now.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> doesn't believe in doesn't believe in death. Yeah, maybe if you mm. don't believe in death, you don't die.
1: Yeah, don't it's it's a bit of a riddle, isn't it? Well, yeah. I am Tarkovsky pilled. Fabulous job, Brad. Yeah, a true thanks. joy. A real pleasure to do these episodes with you. The core episodes yeah. that we do are at the heart of the show. I learned a lot. Uh, he, I wasn't quite prepared for him to be that monstrous. Yeah, he's uh,
0: not. Yeah. You yeah. wouldn't want to come into his orbit. I don't think anything good would come right. into in his I,
1: orbit. But <laughs> at the same time, I also appreciate kind of his candor. Like, hey, look, I'm going to sleep with every actress. This is happening. Like,
0: I mean, if you were going to you know, do it anyway, it's like,
1: right? Like, there's something yeah. to be said about that. But I mean, he, yeah, but yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then, and then this notion of the spiritual is just sort of being like the examined life is the spirit, is spirituality. It's like, right. well, is
0: it? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know either. And it, it did because I did start kind of questioning, you know, what is spiritual? You know, the thing is, it's like, a person to for a person to value it highly that doesn't mean they're perfect right like you know you can you can be a dramatically unethical person and still talk about how important it is there's a certain there is a hypocrisy to it but like if your hypocrisy measurement of hypocrisy is too stringent everybody is a hypocrite
1: right it's well and i also think like for somebody who thinks this deeply the spiritual life is not always the moral life there right. you know right. there's no reason to think that those two things need to coincide right uh, yeah
0: no that's that's very true yeah and he
1: seemed yeah. to wrestle with that great job what Thanks, do you think man. he's doing what do you think he's doing now making movies well- right I mean, yeah. I
0: think he continues making move films. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting to see what he it would be interesting to see what techniques, technologies, and things he decided to pick up and which he like abhorred. You know what I mean? Like mm. would would he would he like digital? He never really had special effects, but he kind of had, you know, he wasn't he wasn't opposed to science fiction tropes. So would would he have leaned more in that direction? Yeah, it's very interesting. Every film he made was so different than the one before it. Like it's hard to understand what his trajectory could have been you know guy who Hard makes a space, a space station movie and an andre sure Gillespie. like what the hell yeah i that think that's one next? of the
1: one of the reasons it's it's so difficult to wrap your head around him in, in, in his career uh, uh who knows yeah. i wonder what he would think of the internet
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> decadent and depraved is what he's decadent <laughs>
1: and petit bourgeois
0: <laughs> right brad <laughs> What are we going to
1: talk about on the After Dark? Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. we got some good stuff coming.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about whether or not Tar- uh, Stalker killed Tarkovsky. All right. And we're going to talk about some uh, spooky things that happened in Tarkovsky's life, some weird coincidences, some of them associated mm. with Stalker versus Stalker, some of them not. And just how close was Tarkovsky to, you know, the ethereal realm, the esoteric, the occult? All right. We'll be back in just, I don't know an eight
1: minute long pause i'm gonna finish <laughs> i'm gonna finish my cough medicine and i'm just gonna go stare at a tree
0: yeah i was just gonna say go stare at a tree until you till you really until it absorbs you
1: yeah consider the texture <laughs> of the pod <laughs> that's
0: the longest break we ever took that, that's that's